let's jump in. And you may or may not want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel. Um, I, some of this stuff in the opening session, like, we're not going to work through the whole book sequentially, you know, in you know, Matthew 1 verse 1, let's explain it all, but I think the commentaries do a great job of that. I'm going to do this, as you can tell from the headings, really, a, a number of different ways of looking at the book and reading the book and ways, questions we can bring to it, which means we'll cover most of the book incidentally as we go, but there'll be, we're not going to read it all verse by verse or anything like that. Um, but I want to start by thinking about a type, what I call a typological approach to Matthew, but just thinking through how do we read the book at all and how do you structure it? How has Matthew structured it and how might we structure it for the purposes of interpreting it, which are in no way the same question. I think the way Matthew structured it is actually quite easy to see. Uh, what he means by what he's done is, is, is pretty clear signposting, I think, in the text. But obviously, lots of interpreters go, I've got to try and organize this book such that I can tell people what it means. And that's not necessarily the same thing as what Matthew does as he's writing it. So here's a few examples, and several of them will show you, particularly this enormous one from Dennis Roxer, um, the dangers of what can happen when people let alliteration be the only concern <laughs> in the way that they approach a structure of book. It's absolutely marvelous. Look, I, prologue to the king, go, yeah, I'll buy that. Preparation, fair preaching. But when it gets to progressive rejection and pedagogical shift of the king, I'm like... I'm sure Dennis Roxer is a wonderful brother, and of course he might be in this room, um, but I doubt it. It's, it looks, there looks something quite slightly American about it to me. Um, but obviously, that's, I put that partly up there for comic effect, and you've got something similar over there with Bruce Logan, and it's always the peas. But Chuck Swindle, you know, this is kind of obviously true in a sense. You have, there's an, there's an introduction, there's an ending, and there's basically a, a a good bit and a bad bit of Jesus' ministry. If you wanted to be over-simplistic about it, he's called it proclamation and reception, which is often primarily the Galilean section of Jesus' ministry, sometimes called the Galilean springtime, which is Jesus preaches and everybody goes, we love this guy, this could be the prophet. And it's not all plain sailing, but much of it is very, yay, Jesus. And then the, it, things begin to take a darker turn. You know, he begins to turn and says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. He keeps telling them I'm going to be killed. And on the third day, rise, get behind me, Satan. The, the, it turns around chapters 16, uh, you know, somewhere in that, in that section. But I would say around the Caesarea Philippi conversation with Peter turns, and then it becomes more a question of opposition and rejection. And then, of course, resurrection and triumph. So that's a very simple outline. But you'd say, yeah, there's a beginning, there's a middle in two parts, a good bit and a more challenging confrontation bit, and then happy ending. Leon Morris in the big commentary that I waved around a moment ago. So again, birth and infancy, preliminaries. <laughs> That's the sort of word you'd only use in, written down, isn't it? No one would say out loud. Um, so today we're going to be looking at Matthew 3. This is uh, preliminaries. It's just a slightly strange way of putting it. But the, again, introductory setting up for the coming of the kingdom. Then the Galilean ministry, the end of ministry in Galilee, then the journey to Jerusalem. So that's a different way of doing what Chuck Swindle's done and the ministry in Jerusalem. So a little bit more granular, trying to break up that, those central two blocks into two sub-blocks each, and then passion, resurrection. Dale Bruner, as I said, he just goes, the Christ book, 1 to 12, the church book, 13 to 28. And so he actually stops, puts the middle in a slightly unusual place, I think. Um, I think that's partly for the purposes of teaching rather than because that's what Matthew's done. Bruce Logan, as you can see again, the progressive rejection makes another, another appearance, uh, to my astonishment. Um, and resurrection is proof at the end. I'm being a bit facetious, but it, it's sort of, you, got, you can see it being done 
almost beyond what it can carry, I think, at times. But then the two, I, one which I, I would just throw out there, this is a sort of whimsical way of looking at it, and the bottom right, and then we'll look at what Matthew's done. But I think it, in some ways you can see a correspondence with the various stages of the Lord's Prayer. I don't know how deliberate this is. I, I do think when we get to see the place of the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, and then we can see that Matthew has structured the whole sermon, so, and, and Jesus has structured the whole sermon so carefully and tightly so that the center of the center is the Lord's Prayer, I think. I'll try and persuade you of that probably somewhere tomorrow. But I think, given that there is, a, you know, this, there is clearly an introduction, there's the infancy narratives, and there's the ministry of John, and then you really, Matthew's got three and a half chapters of preamble, really, and then it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom's near. And at that moment, I think from that point on, chapters 5 to 28, I think you could track through the Lord's Prayer. You might, I, I don't know how much you would buy this, and we will maybe talk about it in a moment. But our Father in heaven, I think the, Lord, the Sermon on the Mount is more than anything really a Sermon on the Father. The Father continually features in the... You, we're used to thinking about it as how to live and a treatise on righteousness, and it is. But it's repeatedly going and saying, your Father will feed you. How, what does it look like to honor your Father, to pray to your Father who's in secret, to give because your Father who sees in secret, to trust that your Father will provide all that you need. It's just continually going back to the, the person of the Father and the fact that he is in heaven, and the fact that he demands things of us that are different from what worldly kings would. And then your kingdom come, verses, chapters 8 to 10, which is, all, you know, the, 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 we get sort of a 10 miracle stories all in a row, um, or nine, depends on how you count. Um, we'll, we'll come to that. And then they're sending out of the, the disciples to preach the kingdom. So you've got this sort of sense of your kingdom come. You've got three chapters, which I think you could even say your will be done, the sense of the way in which the, teach, the kingdom is to come and the way in which we are to live it out. And many of the parables of the kingdom in that section, some of the radical challenges of teaching to talk about how we live God's will. Give us today our daily bread. We'll see this in some detail, but chapters 14 to 16 are obsessed with bread. And everywhere, and two feeding stories, the story of the Syrophoenician women, lots of stories about bread. It, it just all seems to revolve the yeast of the, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. There's a very strong bready emphasis in those middle chapters. And then forgive as we forgive. Various stories and parables addressing the need to forgive others, but also the need for us to come to forgiveness from God. Lead us not into the trial. I mean, the temptation, you could say, I guess, in Gethsemane, but lead us not to the, the time of trial. Um, chapters 21 to 25, which is obviously Jesus confronting his enemies in Jerusalem and then being led through the temptations. Deliver us from evil. Chapters 26 to 27, which I hope doesn't need any explanation. And then in square brackets, because of course it wasn't in the version that Jesus taught his disciples, but yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Chapter 28. Do people buy that at all? Or do people think it's mildly interesting, but it can't be the way in which Matthew was trying to structure it? But that is a little bit interesting. Yeah? That's what I think too, Harry. I, I throw it out there as a sort of... This is, this is me doing a bit of... I just... I, but I... I I think because behind it is a sense that I don't think sometimes the way in which we shape our teaching is necessarily always conscious. It's not like I've done this in such a way as to deliberately narrate this entire story. But this way of thinking about the way I approach God has so got into my soul that it does tend to be the way I go. I start by talking about who God is and how good he is. And then I talk about how his kingdom comes in the world and how I live it out. And obviously the story is going to end with trial, conflict, resolution, and the kingdom. So maybe it's just that. Maybe it's Matthew's internalized the shape of the Christian story so much that it comes out both in the prayer and in the gospel as a whole. 
take it or leave it. I mean, to be honest, all of this is take it or leave it, could all be wrong, but I, I, think, it's, I think there's something to it. What Matthew has done, I think pretty obviously because of the structure, and commentators will all point this out, is Matthew has structured his gospel around five blocks of teaching. Now, what we do with those five blocks of teaching is up to us and how we stitch the narratives around them and where we put the priority and whether we think the teaching blocks come before or after and all of that stuff. There's lots of scope for disagreement on that. But there are five moments in the, in the Gospel of Matthew where there is a long block of teaching at the end of which... It says something like, when Jesus finished saying these things, or when Jesus finished instructing his disciples, or when he had concluded these parables. Um, and so you can see, they're just, or you, you can just look them up now. I imagine some of you already are in your sort of nice new Andy Bray. Or you're looking over your, at your neighbor and going, I don't have one of Andy Bray's nice new little Matthew Bibles. I wish I did. If only I'd move fast next time, so don't miss out on the kids' Bible, or something like that. But you go through and you'll see all of these things, very clear markers, that there's a long block of speech at the end of which is a, then Jesus stopped speaking, and then something else happens. And many of them said, well, five teaching blocks, this is a very Torah-shaped vision of Matthew. It's a, Matthew has got a, a law-based, five-book-based way of communicating, and he's deliberately presenting Jesus as the new Moses, of which more in a moment. So... So for those of us who studied Matthew before, we go, yeah, I know all this. That, that's, that's what that's, everybody says that about Matthew, and, and it's true. It doesn't solve the question to me of how is the whole gospel to be structured? Because obviously it doesn't even start in that sense until chapter 5, verse 1. So there's quite a lot of Matthew that doesn't fit into that structure. And in a way, it's to assume that Matthew's main message is the teaching box. That's really the heart of what's going on in the gospel. Um, and some of us won't, will say, no, 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 I think maybe the, the underlying thread of Matthew's story is being powered by something other than simply these teaching blocks. It, clearly, they are placed strategically in these five chunks, okay, but that doesn't tell me why and how he's shaped the arc of the story the way he has. And I personally think that's true. I don't think it does. But those are a few starters for 10. What I think is really power in the story, as I'll show, hopefully show um, or suggest uh, in the next few minutes, is, I think, a typological reading of, of Israel's story is driving what Matthew is trying to do, but there'll be plenty of room to sort of debate and disagree about that. But anything on this page, anybody got any kind of questions, clarifications, or insults, or jokes, or anything of that nature on this? This is going to be going to, the first person to speak from their seat is going to get, should get some sort of award, I don't know, maybe they won't. Anybody? Howard, this is normally where you say something. <laughs> no, it's fine, you don't have to say anything, Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay, no, any, no one? Okay, so this is where it introduction. So let's, let's talk about Jesus as the new Moses. Oops, that's backwards. Um, okay, so this is, a, this is a table. Since I was last with you, I was told by our executive pastor, he said to me, he came into my office one day, he saw me working on these notes, and he said, Andrew, this is basically your whole ministry. You read a book and you turn it into a shape. That's basically all you do. I was like, yeah, I've just realized, yeah, I read a book, now turn it into a diagram, and then we're done. That's all I have to do. So this is one of many, many shapes, just a table, but a summary, really, of the way in which, this is from Dale Allison's book, The New Moses and Matean Typology, and it's a way of the way in which Matthew presents Jesus as the new Moses. I imagine most of us have picked up on this, whether we've preached through it or just gone, oh, yeah, well, there's obviously the, the Exodus echoes and all that stuff. You, it's hard to miss it completely in the Christmas story, for instance, but there's a lot more to it than that. So Matthew begins, obviously, you have your infancy narrative, the massacre of the innocents, like you do with Moses. 
And then you have the running away until the wicked king dies and then they return. That's the most explicit reference in many ways in the whole gospel. Because the out of Egypt I called my son is obviously a callback to what happens, really saying Jesus is like what happened to Israel, being called out of Egypt. And so it's quite explicit, even though the quotes from Hosea clearly meant to read the story of Jesus in light of the story of Moses. Then Matthew 3, um, we have the baptism and the water crossing, like you have the crossing of the Red Sea. Matthew 4, the wilderness temptation, obviously like echoing Israel's. Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus goes up mountain and gives the law. And obviously, that's a, there's a, many would see a Ten Commandments motive, um, motif there. And not just because it's a block of teaching on a mountain, but because much of it revolves around what you, you have heard, but what I'm now saying. So it is Jesus' law-giving moment. It's him defining the ethics for the people of God. Then perhaps this might be, I imagine so far so good. Most of us are going, yeah, yeah, I've, I've seen that. For some of us, this might be a bit more, I hadn't thought about that before, I don't know. How many people here have noticed the correspondences between the 10 plagues and the 10 healings in Matthew 8 and 9? Who's, who's already there? No one. Oh, that's, this is great. Okay, cash back. Um, people are going, oh, wow, there's something I hadn't seen. Because I, th- I thought that otherwise it would just be a bit obvious. But I think there's a, there's a strong correspondence. Because if you buy the idea that Jesus is being presented as a new Moses... And that his whole journey, as Matthew tells it, is meant to mirror the story of Israel leaving Egypt and moving into the land. If you didn't know that, you weren't starting from there, you might not think, you might think that's a bit trivial, it's just a ten. Well, there's tens everywhere in the Bible. Ten commandments, ten temptations, ten plays, well, what's the deal? But I think if you read it this way, you're more inclined to go, actually, that's, I don't think that is a stretch. I think that's to me, it's actually quite compelling, the idea that Jesus is going one by one and undoing the plagues or the diseases, the sicknesses of the people. And he's effectively bringing, obviously, the, the ten divine announcements of blessing and healing rather than the ten divine announcements of destruction and judgment upon the people of God as he travels through. And I think there's a, a lot to that as we read through. As we'll see, there is debate about whether there's nine or ten of them and that would mess up the numerology, but we can live with that for now. Um, Matthew 11 um, and Exodus 33, this idea that God has come to be known by the people, to reveal himself to them, for them to be actually able to see him. And obviously the Exodus 33, I'm going to know you, you're going to know me, I'm going to be your God. Um, and seeing them face to face as in Matthew 11, the gentle and lowly passage, which we will obviously come back to. Then you have the provision of heavenly bread. Uh, Matthew, I mentioned this already and we'll come back to it later. Uh, Matthew 14 and 15. But again, it's hard not to read the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, as at least in part shaped by the, the manna stories, the idea that this is the true provider of heavenly bread and he's the one who feeds the people out in the wilderness and when they don't have anything else to eat. Um, then Matthew 17, you have transfiguration on the mountain, just again as Moses invited up the mountain to see God and you could use a number of passages from Exodus in, in support of that, I guess, but obviously in Exodus 34. Um, and then Matthew 21 um, arrives to deliver his people riding on a donkey. That one you might think, well, that's a bit more of a stretch because it's both out of sequence and in italics, um, which is my way of saying it doesn't quite fit the structure. But I think even there, there are some echoes of the Moses story in odd ways in the book. When you think that is a, it's just a sort of fascinating little connection. Um, and obviously, similarly, Passover, which is a very important theme in Matthew and obviously couldn't be more important in the Exodus. But that's out of sequence as well. So I'm not claiming the whole thing maps perfectly, and neither is Dale Allison. But there's a lot to it. And then, of course, one of the clearest ones, I think, is actually the Great Commission at the very end. The idea that Jesus then commissions his followers, like the 12 spies, to go and take the land. 
I mean, effectively, so there's 12 of them, 12 spies, but obviously 10 of them don't in the Old Testament, and, and we know that. But the commission saying, now go, I'm going to be with you always. You know, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Go, and I'm always going to be with you. There's a, there's a strong connection. There's, again, if we've preached on the Great Commission, there may well have been a point we've drawn out, or Joshua, if we preached on Joshua 1. That's a pretty close alignment there, I think, as well. So, do people buy that? And, if, and what do people like about it? And what do people not like about it? Yeah. Yes, yes, it doesn't map perfectly. No. Super awesome and brilliant. I'll take that to the bank. Thank you. Um, Yabu sucks, Dale Allison. Um, no, I am. Um, yeah, I agree. And it is. And this is why I think, because obviously at the same, you're, trying to, you're always trying to mesh two things, aren't you? You've got Matthew is structuring his gospel to make a particular point, but he's also trying to tell us what actually happened. So you clearly can't, can't tell the story of Jesus with the Passover happening in, the, in Matthew 11 or something. It was just the whole grammar of the gospel would implode. So Matthew, I think if you buy that he's doing this, you would probably say this is because Matthew is telling the story in as mosaic a way as he can to highlight these connections without distorting what really happened and when it happened. But there's a whole bunch, to, to take that point a little further, there's a whole bunch that Matthew has arranged with his own chronology. And lots of the teaching material is grouped together in ways that it isn't at all in Mark or Luke. You've got these long teaching blocks, but all the, all the parables, I mean, not quite all, but lots of the parables are grouped, grouped together in Matthew 13, which obviously is not what Luke does at all. And even the Sermon on the Mount has got bits of Luke 6, but it's got bits of Luke 11 and various other things. For, you know. So whoever's, you, know, you could say, well, which one's right? But I, I think most interpreters would say, Luke isn't, at the very least, Luke is not grouping the material into teaching blocks in the same way. So Matthew is happy to say, Perhaps this bit didn't necessarily happen right before that bit, but I'm grouping it together for the sake of clarity to help people learn. The narrative, I think, still follows a chronological pattern, but the teaching blocks are reordered for that. But that, obviously there's a limit to that, and so he's clearly not going to completely mess around with the order to change the story. So no, I, I like it. I think it's very helpful. Yeah, Johnny. Um, really like, really like that. The um, head, um, red fingers, 5,000, 4,000 manner. Yeah. Do you think, I don't know this is a bit contrived, but obviously you've got the 5,000 and 4,000, which is like, why? Why is these appearing doubly? I've been through manner and quail. I've always been struck with the, the you get next to 16 and numbers 11. Yeah. Thing, and they look almost identical. Yeah. You have the grumbling, you have the delegating of leaders after. Yeah. And I've always wondered to myself, is this just the same story? Yeah. But that's, I've never spotted the, the link, if that's the case. That's cheeky that you've got the 5,000, 4,000, and you've got two yeah. manner and quail. Yeah, and that, I, to be honest, I hadn't, I hadn't squared the manner quail double with the 5, 4,000. But Matthew, as I was going to make this point later, but I'll make it now. Matthew really likes doubling up. He, he does a lot of doubles. He's like, in the other Gospels, you've got a demonized man, Matthew's got two. The other Gospels, you've got a blind man, Matthew's got two. He's got 5,000, 4,000, which fair, fair enough, Mark does as well. But it's interesting that he seems to quite like bringing these pairs together, whether or not he's trying to do anything with the... That's a, I hadn't thought about that, actually, the idea that many of those stories in the Exodus journeys, you get your, your wilderness narrative in a way happens twice, doesn't it? In Exodus 15 to 19, you get a, oh, we've got a three-day walk, and then we've got water, and then we've got manna, and then we've got quail, and then you seem to get the same sequence in numbers. And so maybe Matthew's got some of that. I, I still don't quite understand why numbers does that, or, or Exodus numbers do that. Um, 
but Matthew clearly does. And I think, as we'll see, the feeding of the 4,000 story is trying to do something, I think, quite different to the feeding of the 5,000 story. But we will come to that when we get there tomorrow, I think. It's all about bread. Everything's about bread in Matthew. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, there, there is some thoughts around how two locations where the feeding with bread yeah. happens. Yes. Going, yes, we are. Well, that's one of the places we'll be going, definitely, yes. Um, and I think, I, and I, I, whereas, but I, that's where I'm with Johnny. I'm going, oh, I'm not, I can't see the, how, the, how that would map onto the manna quail thing. But I quite like the observation that I hadn't seen before. Yes, that there is a doubling of the, the, the nature miracles in numbers are doubled as well, which I hadn't noticed. So that's, a, that's really helpful. Yeah, Tom. Yes, interesting thing about the transfiguration point. Um, while Jesus was being transfigured, there was a failure moment for yeah. the disciples with the epileptic influence. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think very much so because Moses goes up the mountain, comes down, and it's like, what on earth are they doing? And there is a bit of this sort of, you know, they, these are a, a stiff-necked and hard-hearted people, I think is what Moses says when he comes down. And of course, Jesus comes down and says, oh, perverse and twisted or faithless generation, how long am I to put up with you? Bring the boy here. So yeah, the, 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 both of these dramatic high drama encounters, they come down the mountain and immediately encounter a loss of faith. Now, obviously, I think we might say not having enough faith to, to cast a demon out of somebody isn't quite as bad as building a golden calf. But there's clearly meant to be a connection there. Yes, I, I, I think strongly so. Yeah. Upful. Andrew, the, as interesting as the observations are about the links, is there a reason that Matthew does this, that, that he's trying to highlight something about the work of Jesus by this shape? Yeah. I mean, clearly, Moses. But yeah. Is there something deeper that he's trying to, to teach or bring out or highlight to, to a Jewish audience who would be a lot more sensible? Yeah. Yes. I think there is, and I hope it will become clearer as we go, because this is one, one bit of the Matthean typology which I want to I, I add layers to, because this is quite a sort of, oh, yeah, 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 I see it, but where's the, kind of where's the payoff? And people would typically say the payoff is Jesus sees, Matthew sees Jesus as a new lawgiver. That, now, I, I think that doesn't go far enough because I don't think he just sees the teaching blocks as being structured in that way. I think it's the narrative that's structured in that way. So when I said a few minutes ago, my concern about the, the very sort of teachy, teachy five block thing is that it can overplay the importance of those five blocks of teaching as opposed to the narrative. And I think the same happens with the Pentateuch where people also go, this is all about the teaching. I think actually well over half the Pentateuch is story. And I think the same is true in Matthew. So I think there's more going on than just Jesus is a new lawgiver, but that is what the Moses bit is probably trying to do. But I hope to add a couple of layers to it. So you'll ask me again in an hour if it's still muddled. Um, yeah, other, any other comments on the Moses thing? I just feel like you missed a couple of options. Like the water flowing, clinging to this, coming to me and drinking, the rock being water on the rock, and then the rock being struck, and John picks those two pictures up. Yeah, yeah. I no, you're right. The ones that appear in John, I haven't gone there because I think because I think I'm very much specifically reading this as Matthew's version, and I think that some of those elements. I also think, and we'll come to this in a moment. When we talk about the Israel typology. I also think there's we have to differentiate between who is Jesus in this version of typology. Is Jesus the new Moses or is Jesus the new people of Israel? And there is a difference because obviously in several of these examples. I don't think Jesus, in that version, Jesus wouldn't be the new Moses because he's not speaking to the rock to draw water out of it. In some ways, he is the source of water. And I think John, 
is quite different from what Matthew said. John, in several of those examples, is saying actually the well is Jesus, and he's the one who literally gets pierced, and out of his innermost being flow rivers of living water. But I don't think Matthew's doing that, so he, and he doesn't have a, a version that I can think of, a water from the rock equivalent story. He doesn't couch it in quite that way. He's more interested in bread than water. John likes bread as well, but um, as we know. Um, do you see what I mean? And, but, and similarly, wine, right? So John does this in more extended development ways, whereas I think Matthew's doing it more through the blocks of teaching and the shape of what he's doing, which is why I'm starting there. But yeah, that's, you're right. Okay. This is good. Thank you for all the interruptions and questions. That's just what we want. Um, so now Jesus is the son of David. So again, uh, we can tell the story this way, and this is... Yeah, a different way of going. So who is? And this is when you start, when you study New Testament studies at university and they, get, they sit around and they go, oh, now, Matthew sees Jesus as a new Moses. And then you write an essay on that. And then the next week you go, but he also sees Jesus as a new David. And you're like, oh, which is it? And Matthew, you'll just, as you see, how intricately Matthew has fashioned his gospel to draw these themes out. Now, this is very obvious from the genealogy. Because one of the obvious omissions, if you think that Jesus is primarily a Moses figure... What on earth is Matthew doing with that genealogy in such a prominent location? There's no possible reason he needs to start with it if what he's trying to do is say, Jesus is Moses. You'd start with the massacre of the innocents, wouldn't you? Or you start with all the really obvious connections. But he doesn't. He starts with the David typology in the genealogy and then weaves in the David and the Moses typologies throughout the book, I think. Again, take it or leave it. But so here are some examples. If we were to say, forget Moses for now, when Moses is yesterday's man, we're now going to look at the David connections. You, again, you'd see loads and loads of those. So obviously you have a Davidic genealogy and if you, um, you know, had to do a, a dive into the genealogy to preach it or something, you'd probably come across this idea of you know, the, the gematria, the, the game that they play. Where, where effectively, we're in a lot of languages like, like Roman numerals, where letters, are num- letters and numbers are the same thing. In English, obviously, we have completely different. We have Latin letters and we have Arabic numerals. Um, originally Indian numerals, but in many languages they don't. They, the same figures count for both, which means that if you write the word Dawid, then you get 14. And so the idea that there are 14 generations and it's all about David, is a, it's a joke that doesn't really translate into English. And so, you know, your footnote writers in the Bible going, well, this is actually funnier than it sounds, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But it's not a joke, but it's like a game. It's just a way of playing with numbers and you get the... We, a few years back on Revelation, looked at this with Nero and 666, all that sort of thing. Um, so you got it here with, with David. Um, so you have the values of Dalit and war added up, you get 14. Um, but then, of course, the genealogy is very Davidic in its thrust. You've got these 14 generations from here to here, and it's all very much about the shape of the Davidic story and the messianic hope. Matthew 2, 1 to 12, you know, the sort of birth in Bethlehem. You know, Jesus, like David's, the boy from the house of bread. He's like, he, he comes, he's like the, yeah, again, breadbasket boy. This is, where he, this is his hometown. And the story's told again. So you could read Matthew 2 and go, oh, this is just a Moses story. But you could also read it and say, this is a David story. This is an out-of-nowhere guy, just born in this little town. That's the obvious echo you would hear if you're reading it in light of the David story. You then got Matthew chapter 4 as he goes around gathering people by the Lake of Galilee. You get this echoes of David gathering his co-workers or his disciples and he's building together his army with which he is eventually going to try and take the land but he hasn't done yet 
Um, you have a strong contrast. I, I don't know whether I buy this or not, so I put it in italics. That's generally italics is me. Here's a thought, rather than you should believe this. Um, but I think it's quite interesting. But the, the contrast between the easy and heavy yokes or burdens, I don't think this is like David typology as such, but I find it quite an interesting connection as well. So obviously, you know the, the Rehoboam story about are you going to have heavy yokes or light yokes? And Jesus saying, that's what, I've, that's what I am. I'm the guy who comes to bring, take the heavy yoke from you and get you to share my burden instead. Matthew 12, 1 to 8 is very clearly informed by the story of um, Doeg the Edomite. And so the idea that you have, you know, the king eats the consecrated bread. And of course, Jesus plays that trump, typological trump card. Because the Pharisees are like, what are you doing? Are you, this, this is, you're breaking the Sabbath. And he goes, well, haven't you read? David did it. And obviously behind that, the, the, that appeal, that argument only works as a gotcha, which I think is what we're meant to see it as, if Jesus is saying, well, I am David's. Like, that wouldn't be an argument you would make if you were saying, oh, no, I'm, I'm a Moses figure. But of course, he's saying, no, David was allowed to eat the consecrated bread because he was the king. Me too. Uh, that's, that's the only way the argument can make any sense, I think. So he's clearly appealing to what we would now call a sort of David messianic typology, I guess. Um, that's the only way it works. Compassion or obedience is better than sacrifice. This is a, obviously, that's a big thing. That's the reason why David gets the kingdom in the first place, really, because Saul gets... Um, you're taken out for that. That's the, re- the one-line rebuke, isn't it? Um, obedience is better than sacrifice. And of course, in Matthew, it's compassion is better than sacrifice, or I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And that comes through uh, in two separate occasions, that quotation from Hosea, particularly in Matthew 12. Then Matthew 12 and 1 Samuel, you've got the plans of the you know, Pharisees and Saul, the, the current king. You've got, you know, you've got Saul is the current king and he knows that the new king on the block is gathering followers and traveling the land and he's beginning to develop his own private army of followers and the new king is not happy about it and wants to kill him. And then, of course, you have exactly the same with the way that initially Herod responds to the hearing about Jesus. and He's, he's gathering these followers. What's going on here? He's going to try and kill him as well. Um, Matthew twelve fifteen, the withdrawal of the king to a hidden place because he knows that the existing king is going to try and kill him. So again, David and Jesus both on the run with a funny band of followers who keep getting things wrong, hiding from the current pretty savage, nasty king who's in power now and doesn't like the idea that the new king has got some followers himself. And then you've got the question, could this be the son of David, which is very explicit in Matthew 12. So Matthew 12 concentrates a lot of these themes together. And it's pretty, you know, pretty blunt, I think. If you're wanting a, a proof text for the system, I know sometimes we, we like something that you can put on a calendar. Um, but could this be the son of David, in some ways, is the question that I think this whole typology is raising. So is, is that who we are dealing with here? Is that what, the Christ? One greater than Solomon is here. Again, very explicit appeal. Matthew 13, we'll, we'll look at this in more detail later, the Solomon parables, connections there. Um, but the parables and proverbs based on the natural world. And again, that sort of exasperated question, where on earth did this man get this wisdom from? Who does he, who does he think he is? And how is he supposed to have got this? Where's the wisdom? That's often what strikes people about Jesus when they're his enemies. And it's not just where's the power or the authority even, it's where's the wisdom come from? And we'll look more at that as we get into the, the sapiential reading later. And then, of course, the, the obvious conclusions to the story, the uh, Jesus Coming, entering the, the triumphal entry, being acclaimed as king, um, and then being betrayed by a close friend who then hangs himself, which obviously is what happens to David with Ahithophel. Again, so to what extent do you buy that? You go, some of that's obvious, some of that, yeah, okay, some of that hadn't seen. Comments? 
David. So it's interesting, you're talking about the Moses and you're talking about the David thing. My question was, how much of this did Jesus self-consciously know that he was doing? Yes. Did he set out to be a second Moses, or was this just Matthew's interpretation? Did he set out to be a second David? Mm. Um, it seems to me that from these examples that, that Jesus referred to himself as David in connection with David, more than he did... I totally... That's, yeah. That's, that, is, that is what I was going to say. I, I think that the Moses typology is the force is stronger with Matthew. But I think it's still there. I think that you've heard it was said, but I say to you, in a way, if you're a Jewish man trying to teach people what the ethics of your new kingdom is, what are you going to do? If you, there's no way of doing it other than by talking about Moses, even if only to amplify what he said. So I think there's clearly going to be self-consciousness in that from Jesus. I, I, he clearly does regard, he, because he's saying, I haven't come to... You know, get rid of the law, come to fulfil it, and you know. So he's clearly aware of that. But I agree. I, I mean, he's. I don't think he's clearly as a little boy. He's not orchestrating the massacre of the innocents so that he can live out the Moses. Do you see what I mean? An extreme example. Whereas the David one, I quite agree. He is a lot of these things. He's very deliberately doing in a David way and explicitly making that appeal. Um, which I think is why Matthew 12. I made. I made quite a lot of that because that's the bit where I think it becomes very clear. You are. This only makes sense if you're claiming to be the new David, which I think he is. That's uh, a really good question. And we're always, it's always a bit fuzzy, isn't it? Like, how much is this is Matthew? How much is Jesus? And what are the other gospel writers saying? But I, I think you're always seeing both, but I think the balance is different. Martin? Is there another one with um, Jesus' baptism and the anointing of David? Would that be another parallel? Yeah. Yes, I think it is in a way, isn't it? Because this is, the, this is the moment that you are being called out and identified publicly in Israel as the one whose God's presence rests on and the Spirit comes upon him. So yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like a passing of the battle as well from Samuel to, to David. Yes, yes, exactly, yeah. So the, I think that, that when you, uh, there's more we could add. Yeah, you're right. The, the Samuel to David and the, the prophet anointing him and the idea that John baptizes Jesus is clearly a Samuel David thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I like the, what you said about the parables and the relation to Solomon. I think there's a link too with David's own ministry. You know, David was the psalmist, he wrote songs, he taught of his singing, and Jesus describes himself as the music man in Matthew chapter 12 as well. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the music man. <laughs> Sorry, you, can you hear this? That Jesus describes so that David is the psalmist, and Jesus describes himself as the music man in Matthew 12, um, which as in you you wanted me to you you're like kids singing in the marketplace saying you. Yeah, I like that. I hadn't. So the, you're saying that you're drawing the music man thing from the fact that he said you're like children playing, saying you wanted to play. A dirge, but then you didn't mourn. That, is that text? Is that the one you're referring to? He's saying John the Baptist is the, is the guy yeah. who's mourning, and the guy who's yeah. like yes. the yeah. like, yeah. from... yes. It's David's musical ministry, yeah. 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 No, that's good. I think that I'm sure there's something to that. I think the reason. I probably haven't gone there because I see him more in that section of Matthew as living out Solomon. But, it, but that's exactly the section where it shifts from David to Solomon, and we'll come to that in a moment. But I, I like that. I really like that. I haven't thought about that at all. 
Steve. The question that comes to mind when I look at that, both with Moses and David, would be how much has Matthew in writing sat down and thought, right, I need to represent Jesus as Moses, yeah. I need to represent Jesus as David and done this? Yeah. Or how much has he just represented the life of Christ? And because Christ is the new Moses and the new, and the new David, yeah. this is what you get. Yeah. Yeah. I no, and I I think this is related to David's question as well. And I I think, I think the, um, as in this David rather than King David. Um, But I, um, I I think that the ordering of the structural, the intentionality of Matthew's level is stronger on the Moses side, because I think of the way he's ordered things. I think the Moses thing comes across more by the way that Matthew's chosen to tell the story. I think the David one has come more through what Jesus himself is doing and trying to identify. But as I'm I'm kind of burying the lead here a bit because what I want to get to in about half an hour is I actually think there's another story which is swallowing up both of these stories within it, which I think Jesus and Matthew are in cahoots. But I probably think the David element is more Jesus' own ministry and mission. And in the end, if you're the Messiah, that's that's how you, you know, you're obviously the new David. Whereas the Moses one is not as clear in the other Gospels at all, I would say. There are, oh, Jesus is the new and better this, 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 and this, but the Moses specifically parallels, I think, are much less strong in Mark, Luke, and even in John than they are in Matthew. So I think that's more Matthew's work. Um, which is why it's good to have four Gospels, because you can almost compare and see what, who's drawing out what and why. Yeah. You're basically saying Steve's asking a silly question. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just, yeah, just get some data out there. Um, I think it can be, I think it can be illuminating though, because what you're trying to, I think what's behind the, the good bit behind the question is to go, when we, how much of this was Jesus aware of, and how much. How much is he doing these things to show that he is something? And how much is the writer organizing his material a certain way to try and get us to see it? And I do think that some stories would be read slightly differently. So, for instance, if you read the story about the son of David and, the, and the, eating the holy bread, as if that was like Matthew's work rather than Jesus' own intentionality, you, would, you could end up with what some scholars obviously do say, which is Jesus didn't think he was the Messiah at all. This is just what the Christians came to believe. Whereas I think when you ask these questions, you're able to differentiate. So, oh no, the, the Moses ordering is a lot of that is Matthew. But the Davidic fulfillment thing, that's on Jesus. Like he is clearly doing these things to show that he is David. And therefore he does believe he's the Christ. And that for our Christology is obviously very important. So I think there can be some payoffs. But I take the point. They are both spirit inspired clearly. But yeah, I think we'd all agree Jesus is more important than Matthew. What Jesus meant to do and say matters more than what Matthew said about it. Even though we're obviously reading one through the other. Um, so, yeah. Rich. Andrew, just thinking, um, in any generation or in any kind of uh, era, there'll be um, biography shaping things in, in history which makes sense to that culture and context. So for us in this room, it may be, I don't know, the Second World War or 9-11 yeah. or something yeah. like that. And so if, if you were writing into this generation about a saviour or a redeemer, you, you may be talking about language that refers to those sorts of events, I imagine. So I, I suppose my question is, my observation is, um, 
for us, sitting here in the 21st century, are we overthinking Matthew sitting down and thinking, oh, I need to make a point that Jesus is a David and an Adam and an Israel and a Moses and a... Is this just not what would have been natural for a writer in that time? That there are all these significant shaping events, the Exodus, that's who we are. King David, that's who we are. The exile, that's who we are. And so, as I present this Redeemer to you, it just makes sense that you naturally map one onto the other. Uh, yes and no. I think, it, I think the bare bones of that story are obviously available to everybody, and you're not going to tell a story about the redemption of Israel without drawing on big themes like creation, election, exodus, exile, whatever, kingdom. But I think the counter-argument would be, but Matthew's very different to Luke or, or John. Like, they're telling the same story often to the point that word for word, a lot of the Gospels are the same, but the way they're ordered is very different. And so there's obviously lots of different ways of telling that story. And the example someone gave a few minutes ago about Jesus is the, is what you were saying, isn't it? About the, the you know, in John, the, the, the well of water who has the blood pouring out and the wine, all that sort of stuff, which Matthew goes, I'm assuming Matthew knew a lot of those stories, but he just doesn't make anything of them. Matthew doesn't want to tell us about the woman at Samaria. He doesn't want to tell us about the bread of life discourse. Like, and similarly, John doesn't want to tell us about a lot of this. Why is that? And so I think this is where some degree of, you know, gospel engage, you know, engagement between the different gospels, you're, going, you're clearly seeing something of the beauty of Christ that you want to amp up so that we don't only have this version. And that's the, so you, the best me- metaphor I know of, I think Wright, Tom Wright in one of his other books talks about the sort of the four gospels as being different sort of channels on a, on a sound system. And so you, you, and the best harmony comes when all four are playing together, but actually it would be, it'd be too easy to have a one-dimensional take and so, in a, so I agree with you in the out, broad outline, but Matthew's made a lot more of some of these themes than the other Gospels have, and I think that's, that's the reason for digging into those particularly. Okay, let me do... Let me show, show you... No, go. Uh, just on the compassion, obedience, better and sacrifice, yeah. I wanted to solid that on David, Psalm 51. Yeah. Because, you know, if, if you wanted sacrifices, I'd give you it, but yeah. if you wanted to come try hard. Yeah. Um, and also, obviously, Jerusalem and David are very powerfully connected, what is that? I feel like this gives us some interesting things. What does that mean for the direction of travel in Matthew's gospel? What does it mean? Yes. Not just to be the king coming to Jerusalem, but perhaps even the presence of God in the way that yes. he brings the ark into Jerusalem. Yes. Have you any thoughts on that? Yes. Um, yes, I do. I think, I, 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 I think the idea, I particularly think because of the, the way that Matthew tells the betrayal Judas Ahithophel thing. I think that Matthew is particularly interested in the scene where after Absalom's revolt, David leaves the city, crosses over, disappears out onto the Mount of Olives and then comes back. And that the response with which he's greeted is different. You know, even those, those people, you know, Shimei cursing and all, that, all those stories, I think Matthew's trying to echo all of that in the way he tells the story about the Mount of Olives and Judas's betrayal and even down to the way he dies which we'll come to, is obviously different famously from the way he dies in Acts. And I think that's, again, on Matthew, I think that's the element he's trying to draw in. But you're right, because, of course, in a sense, Jesus is the ark, and in a sense, Jesus is the holy city, Zion himself, and in a sense, he's the king. And so how, do you, how are you going to tell a story to draw out all three of those? I think he more sees him as David than he does as the ark, but, yeah, he's um, Steve. The uh, Jesus' fulfillment of the Israel story is that to the Jewish audience so they understand it, and this is fulfilling everything you've been living for? Or is that for the Gentiles to go, this is the story now you're included in, by faith? 
So which audience does Matthew have in mind as he retells Israel's story of David, Moses? Um, I wanted to say yes to both. I, I, I mean, I think we, it's obviously been a commonplace for a long time that Matthew's writing a Jewish, the most Jewish of the Gospels or that he's writing for a Jewish audience. But I think you can overplay that if, as we'll see in a, a bunch later, that in some ways, although Matthew makes what some, at times seem like the narrowest, you know, famously in the commission in chapter 10, go nowhere among the Gentiles, go only to Israel... But in many ways, Matthew has a more globally expansionist view of the ministry of Jesus. In some ways, even more than Luke, actually, in, in certain respects. Like the sort of many will come from east and west and take their place at the table of the kingdom. And the, obviously right through to the Great Commission. So there's a lot of that. And actually, he says he's, Matthew and John are both the most Jewish eyewitnessy gospels. But they're also the ones that say the most, have the most direct words of rebuke for the Jewish people. His blood be on us and our children, being the kind of very... I mean, some would say notorious example, but a very strong statement like that, um, which also you get in John. So the, the guys who seem to be most interested in the Jews are often likely to be, and, and Jewish themselves, are often the ones who give the harshest challenge, just like the people who are most likely to complain about the quality of Liverpool's football are Liverpool fans. Like, but it's true, isn't it? Like, I think you, there's a, you can give a critique to your own family, um, whereas I think the Gentile expansion vision in Matthews is very strong, and he's clearly telling this story, even from the genealogy, with the Gentiles and the women being incorporated. I think he's... From the very beginning, he's going, this is always meant to have Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, all the you know, Moabites and all these sorts of people in the family. So I don't think reading it as this is for Jews and Gentiles, go, oh, interesting. That's the story about them. That's not how Matthew's written it at all. It's, it, the final line is, go and, go and make disciples of all nations. So yeah, it's a very missionary text, and we'll come back to that. Final question for now. Yes, sir. Yes. And then Matthew would observe that just by writing his gospel. Yes. So whilst I really think that some things are intentional, it must be his next character just coming through. Is that what it was? Yes. Yes, I absolutely agree. I, th- I don't think in the end you can separate them out. But I think, again, I'll go back to Matthew 12. I think there are places where Jesus explicitly makes an appeal to being one like David's that help us realize this is not simply that he's almost just doing it by default. He is self-consciously appropriating David's mantle for himself. Um, and not only David's, as we'll see, but I think that, that's why I think intentionality is definitely there. But you're right, it's an expression of... In, of course, if you stand back from history as a whole, and with divine providence, you'd say, well, actually, in the end, it's not that Jesus is doing that because David's like that. It's David ended up doing it because Jesus was like that. Like, ultimately, that's what I would affirm. But I think it, that just gets a bit difficult to understand when you're thinking about individuals and what they're saying and writing. Um, so I'd sort of tell the story the, the, his, the chronological way but I, I think we're right at a broader level both are true okay I want to show you three more and that I'm not, we're not going to go line by line through these um, our friends at the Bible Project who pro- many of us I'm sure have found helpful particularly when mapping a book I just I put these up because I think they're these, they're just so well done. They're just brilliant, uh, using a mixture of art and just clarity to communicate what's going on. And this, I think, I mean, I'm, I'll say that I think there's more to it, and we're going to do a bit more on typology uh, in the second half of, of this evening. Um, but I just think there is just so much fantastic detail in here, and as an organizing um, approach to the book, there's a huge amount to learn from that. And so what I've actually done is to then drill down over the course of the next two slides 
to give you these big chunks, 4 to 7, 8 to 10, 11 to 13, and then 14 to 20, 21 to 25. And you'll notice that the way in which Tim Mackey and co. have structured this is based on Matthew's five-fold structure that we noticed here, the five teaching blocks. Yeah, so he, the Bible project have gone chapters 4 to 7, chapter 8, chapters 8 to 10, chapters they've effectively said, and when he had finished saying these things, is and should be the organizing principle behind the book. And I'd be interested in, for you to discuss in tables, putting those various things together, Jesus is the new Moses, Jesus is the new David, and the fivefold structure, what do you find most illuminating? When it comes either at level of, oh, that's interesting, or at the level of, that really helps. That helps with preaching. That helps with understanding. Helps with just remembering what's going on. You may have experienced the kind of, which gospel is that in? And where is that? And is that, it just seems another, I remember talking to one of my fellow elders years back in, um, in Eastbourne about, the, about preaching through a series on the gospel. And he said, the problem is, I just, it just feels like it's just like one healing story after another. Like what's the, as in what's different about this week's story as opposed to what we did last week? And you can probably relate to that. Certainly with Matthew, you're just like, wow, it's 10 in a row. If you're preaching them, how do you do that? How do you, how do you go, oh, this, this guy, well, he couldn't speak, he couldn't see, he was leprous, he was demonized. How do you differentiate and unbundle them? Is there any payoff anywhere from any of this stuff? Or is just the last 72 minutes been a total waste of time? Right? And I don't know. I'd be interested to ask what you think. So having given the Bible project slides as a kind of, you can look at them hopefully in a bit more detail if you've, if you've got them in front of you, which a bunch of you have, if you receive, hopefully you receive the email. If not, it's obviously here. Have a think through. What do you find useful? Discuss. Spend five minutes just kicking it around and going, these are the, these are the approaches of that that I've either learned, found helpful, want to challenge, or think might have some practical value. Okay, any, any reflections or insights from that sort of, what I'm hoping happens is that as we're talking, someone on your table says something and you go, oh wow, that's much better than what the guy at the front was saying, that kind of dynamic. So yeah, John Flavel. Hey. Oh, you put your hand up for him. Yeah, that is bad form. I, I, I think they should. Uh, no, my reflection was just that um, a bit about Steve's question about who is it written for, Jew or Gentile, was um, the, the Jewish people, as Matthew's target audience, have been waiting 2,000 years for a Messiah. There's been promise and um, story and questions and kind of... Um, and so Matthew, in 28 chapters, is trying to answer all of those questions is he this is he the david mm. is he the moses is he what about that story what about that promise and and in 28 chapters he's trying to get to a point at the end where all the jews go yes he is where they don't have a leftover question of but what about the what about solomon is he because yeah. we were told he'd be the new and greater solomon so i think um in terms of the intentionality and the, I think Matthew has that 2,000 years of questioning and waiting and and praying for a Messiah in mind when he's yeah. So you'd expect it to have a, a Jewish focus, if only because they're the people who are, yeah. They've been waiting for, you know, 400 years of silence up to that point. What questions did they have? And he's thinking, I, I need to show them all. Yeah. Jesus is the answer to that question. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. 
And I, I'm intrigued because I think it's difficult. All, the, all four Gospels, you could say, are telling a more Gentile-friendly version of the story. And Luke, you'd go, oh, well, he's a Gentile, so I'll look at all these you know, Gentiles and you know, women and poor people being included. But then you go, hang on. But actually, there's times when Matthew explains things to his readers that Luke doesn't. And you think, well, why is that going on? It, 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 so when he does the thing about Corbin, you, you just see, you know, and you know, it's devoted to, you know, it's, anything's devoted to Corbin. You think, you, you don't, if you're only writing the Jews who were all in the know, you wouldn't say things like that, but he does. And so it's obviously got, there's, a, there's more going on here than simply writing a Jewish story. But yes, the expectation thing is huge. John. Okay, um, so do you? <laughs> I haven't thought about this. I I generally think of the story as the, almost the patriarchal narrative as starting more with the Jacob and Joseph. Apart, apart from the very obviously the opening. So what have you, what have you got in mind? Because I bet it's good. I'm thinking that um, the call of Abraham in Genesis 12 is a call to lead and follow, which is to be more such. Right. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, in the, in the sense that it's like the foundation, it's the charter text for, in some ways, the whole Old Testament, isn't it? It's like, this is what this nation are going to be and do. So there's obviously, it's going to grow out of the promise to Abraham and the covenant to Abraham. I thought you meant, like, that there are echoes of Abraham's life or journey in, but I think you're saying leaving your father's house and going in on a, as a missionary to the world, effectively, and then commissioning people to be a blessing. Yeah, I totally buy that. I think that's... That's obviously, in many ways, what it is to be a Jewish person, is to be in Abraham and living out that story. But I hadn't particularly seen it as being something that his life paralleled Abraham's life. Um, obviously, apart from the obvious typological things like being offered up as a sacrifice, all that stuff. But you know what I mean? That, the, that, that sort of parallel I hadn't seen in, a, in a, that correspondence. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I think the significant difference is that for what there's like the promise of one like Moses to come and the promise of the son of David to come. Whereas with Abraham, say, or other things that we might compare Jesus to, like he does compare himself to the temple, it's not the, the promise in the same sense. There's the seed of Abraham, so you might like want to see where he slots in there. Yeah. But specifically, they are waiting for the new causes to appear, yes. waiting specifically for the descendant of David who's going to sit on the throne. Yes. So they, you know, we could do a typology with Abraham, it feels different. To... Yeah, I agree with you. And I think Moses and David are more explicit, but as I hope to, sh uh, maybe in the next session when I come to this, I actually think there's a whole load of ways in which the typology works for people who there's no expectation of there being, no one's living around expecting the true and better Jehoiachin as far as I know, or the true and better, even the true and better Joseph, actually. Now it would be like a commonplace that Jesus is the true and better Joseph, but I don't think that was a, an expectation in, in a sense. So I think you're right, but it, could, it almost could prove too much because I think there are, but the, that's why these two are so majored on, I think. Yes, you're right, because the expectation is, it's back to what you were saying, they've been waiting for so long, who is this? Um, and there's two specific words about, I, you are, 
I will make a son for me and I'll make his house will last forever in 2 Samuel 7. And the, I'm going to raise up a prophet like, like you from among your brothers from, in Deuteronomy. So Moses and David are the two people you'd expect to be amplified there, I think. Yeah, Liz. <laughs> um, so, I mean, at a pedantic level, I go. I mean, the genealogies, the story of the wise men, the the the, the particular way he the Sermon on the Mount, much of a bunch of the material in the Sermon on the Mount, the Golden Rule, the parable of the wicked tenants, um, a number of things about the cross and resurrection narrative, the Great Commission, a lot of the parables. I mean, so I think quite a lot of substantial things that he's the only one who, at a very fussy level, like he's the only person who says a bunch of those things. I think his contribution, if that's what you mean, more broadly, like what's, what's the aspect of Jesus that he's trying to draw out? I think, that's, I, think it is, I think it is clearer in him, and we'll do this in the next session, that Jesus is living out the story of Israel. And I think from beginning to end, not just a couple of edited highlights. Um, and I think that's much clearer in him. I do think it comes through in Luke. I, and I think it does come through in a very different way in John, but in John it comes out much more through Jesus' extended dialogues with people and his I am sayings, whereas in Matthew it comes through almost the whole story of his life. Um, and so I think Matthew then provides like a hermeneutical key to read the Old Testament in a very different way. So I think if we didn't have Matthew, I don't, I don't think we would have the chutzpah to say, out of Egypt I called my son is a promise about the Lord Jesus. I, I think we'd go, that's Hosea talking about you know, exile and going back to the Exodus. Whereas when you see Matthew do it, you go, oh gosh, are we allowed to do that? Are we actually allowed to read the whole Old Testament as if that... So you'd see Luke, you know, Luke 24, when Jesus says, then he explained everything in the Old Testament about himself. But you'd go, come on, Luke, what did he say? Like, what on earth is that the only verse you've given us, you clown? And you read the book of Matthew and you go, I wonder if it looked like this. Matthew is like a book-length version of that. So I think there's some specific material we would lose, but I think it's more the methodology, which I, that's what I find so exciting about him. That's why he's my favorite gospel, I think, is that because I can see him doing it. And we've all got favorites. How many people's favorite gospel is, you don't have to say Matthew, because, you know. Um, how many people's favorite gospel is John? Luke? Mark? Ooh. Yes, there's a little cluster over there. You, I sense the influence of John Woods. Matthew? Okay, I'm hoping to up the final group by the end of Thursday, but yeah. Uh, but that's, that's what I think we get. Any other, sorry, there was another, so Tim first, and then. Yes. Yeah, I do. So the question is, do you think there's any connection between Matthew's five sections and the five books of Psalms? And, and I do, in part because, as you have shown in some detail, and, and Jim Hamilton and others, like, that the connection between the five books of the Psalms and the five books of Torah. So I think in some ways the reason why Matthew and Psalms have a similar flow is because they both have echoes of the flow in the Pentateuch rather than because Matthew's... I did look at it, actually. I kind of got in tried to get, is Matthew deliberately doing the psalm story? But I, I don't think he is, partly because, again, as you would know, like books one and two of the psalms are the wrong way around, I think, to map onto the David and Jesus stories. Do you know what I mean? As in the, 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 
the trials and troubles get, it, it seems backwards, doesn't it? That the difficult psalms are earlier that, rather than the vindication psalms. So I kind of, I'm not quite prepared. I wouldn't quite go there. But I think, yes, there is, even just the fact that there's five books. And obviously, book five of the psalms and book five of Matthew are much closer. The idea of, because the songs, let's go up to Jerusalem. You know, you've now, you, in Psalm 110, you've become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now let's go and go up the Hallel Psalms, which Jesus sings the night he's betrayed. Then Psalm 119, here's the block of law. And then the songs of ascent, let's go up to Jerusalem and celebrate and finish with a bang, hallelujah, five times. I think that is an end of Matthew. So I, th- I think that cl- parallels closely. But books one and two, I just can't. I may have missed it, actually, but I, I'm not... Are you, would, you, would you go there, do you think, with books one or two, or not, really? you just... Speculation. Speculating is what we do here. To be honest, I considered calling the conference Speculates, but um, <laughs> I thought people would think it was a conference about glasses, so I decided to call it Think instead. Um, and then you had a question, and then we'll break. I was just going to say, just on a really practical basis, I think what's great about this is the, uh, just in terms of engaging people with the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but just this to be able to lead people and the people we're responsible for to, to get out of charge and say, yeah. go and read these two sections yeah. in scripture, and just enjoy finding yeah. Christ um, as the new Moses, find Christ as the new David. I just think it's a really um, as simple as you can make it yeah. of just getting um, the average person who's new to to just to make those connections. Yes. Yeah. No, I, no I, 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 that's, that's why, I think that's why Matthew's my favourite. That, that, that's, the, well, that's his calling card. You know, then they've all got their calling cards, haven't they? But that, for me, is his. You go, without this book, to Liz's question, I don't think you would really get how to do that. You'd see snippets of it in Paul and obviously the other Gospels, but Matthew's just so comprehensive. You're just like, wow, I would not... I just. Ahithophel, Jehoiachin, who are these people? I didn't even know that they... And, and then you see the way they do it, and you go, oh, all right, you, you really have tried to help us find our feet in the Old Testament. We are going to break, um, take half an hour. Their refreshments are... If you found... You may not have found the room, but as you walked in from the street, you would have walked past a room on your right where there's coffee and tea. So we're going to head down there. Obviously, feel free to mill around. Do um, avail yourself of the books. Have a little snoop. Look at the kids' Bible. Look at the commentaries. And we'll start again at six. I will, I'm going to jump on from the, uh, the sort of, here's all these different ways of reading it into something which a light heart has helped me enormously on this. And again, this is one for some of you will buy it more than others, or you might buy some bits of it more than others. But I think this is really cool. And I think there's more to the typology than we have anticipated. I know I've dropped in a couple of hints about Joseph and Ahithophel and Jehoiachin and so on, but particularly Elijah and Elisha, where I just think this is great but obviously, I've built that up a lot now, so if it turns out not to be great, you will question both my exegesis and my judgment. Um, but, oh, no, not there. So, let's assume, let's take, take for read that something like the Bible Project overview of the structure of Matthew still works. But I want to talk more about the story of Matthew and the, and the typological retelling of Israel. And so this is the next four pages, okay? So, but we'll work, it, work through it a bit at a time, because I think there's a lot of, a lot of good stuff here, okay? So... Leihardt's basic contention is that the structure of Matthew is intentionally telling not just bits of Moses and David typology, but recapitulating the whole Old Testament. 
and in, in the sense that it starts with Genesis and it finishes with the exile and the return, and that the whole arc of the narrative of Matthew deliberately tracks that, which is why when we went through a few pages ago, the, you realize that the, the David stuff is clustered around Matthew 12 and 13. And the Moses stuff actually was clustered around chapters 1 to 3. And there's some of it a bit later as well in other ways, but mostly it follows this pattern. And I think there's a huge amount to that, which I want to walk through a bit at a time and, and uh, try and make that case. So it begins with the phrase, as you know, if you, we read it in English, these are, this is the book of the generations of, but you know, literally this is the book of Genesis. In, in Greek, or that, that's, how it, that's how it comes out. This is the book of the Genesis of. Um, and so Genesis 1 to 11, the book of origins, is how the book starts, quite literally with those words, although obviously in English it doesn't quite read that way, but that's what the appeal is. And then the genealogy of the son of Abraham, Abraham's genealogy, which is the extent to which what John was saying earlier, I think is, is clearly true, that there is an Abrahamic overlap um, but effectively begins with a book of, not just the book of the origins, but the book of the genealogy. And that's the first thing that happens in the story, which is obviously what, much of what is going on in Genesis. Then you have a story of Joseph, or, you know, Yosef ben Jacob, who is the dreamer. And Matthew begins, then you know, the first narrative of an individual person in this book is the story of Joseph, son of Jacob, the dreamer. And you think, okay, that's... I hope some of you go, no, that's it. That is interesting. I hadn't really thought it because you don't really think about him in that way. But you think there is obviously anybody reading this who's familiar with your Old Testament. Whenever people say that, you always go, I thought I was familiar with the Old Testament. And I've never noticed that in my life. <laughs> but how, how many people, honestly, let's, you know, there's no shame here because I think most of us are going, ooh. How many people had noticed Joseph the dreamer is at the front end of the chapter one and it, this is a recapitulation of Genesis? Who, who'd seen that before? One. Now, you don't have to be ashamed to put your hand up, for goodness sake. This is, you get kudos in this room for that. But most of us are going, no, like there's maybe 10 of us have. But actually you go, wow, I think that's pretty compelling, that this is deliberately a story of a, of a, of a, yeah, of a righteous man who dreams dreams and has angelic appearances, and as a result, you see the promises come to his whole family. Chapter 2, 1 to 12, wise men from afar travel to Joseph's family with gifts. And obviously in Genesis 42 to 50, nations from afar travel to Joseph's family with gifts. Herod kills the infants. Pharaoh kills the infants. This is more familiar territory. We would often see that, I'm sure. Jesus is rescued and runs away from his people. Moses is rescued, runs away from his people. Jesus returns to his people. Moses returns. That's, again, fairly predictable. John, the older, and this, again, some of you go, ooh, that, I'm not sure I buy that as much, but I like it. Um, so John, the older, proclaims judgment brought by Jesus the younger. Aaron, the older brother, proclaims the judgment brought by Moses the younger. Now, of course, Jesus and John are cousins, not brothers, but there is a, I think you can see some degree of pairing between John and Jesus and Aaron and Moses. Um, Jesus is baptized in the waters. Israel is baptized in the waters. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, like Israel is. We've done this in the previous one. Jesus calls the disciples, Moses appoints judges, and then, of course, with bells on, the Sermon on the Mount and the giving of Torah, which we need to do in a lot more detail, and we will, because the Sermon on the Mount is so central, not just to Matthew, but to Jesus' vision of the kingdom and Christian ethics and so on, so we will spend plenty more time on that. But I think, again, the idea that, what, really, if you were to walk through Israel's story, we've covered nearly all of it, uh, up, up to Numbers chapter 10 or so, the giving of the law. And so then when you read all of that, of course, you would expect the Sermon on the Mount to be a new Torah 
and as indeed it is. Anybody want to sort of pause there, double click on anything? Okay, what? No, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. You haven't done um, the child placed in a different I haven't. Moses placed in a different family. Oh, as in Jesus being brought up by Joseph and Mary. In the, in the... Yeah, being placed in a different Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's good. I mean, effectively being, in a sense, adopted. Yeah, I mean, in, in, of course he was. Yeah. Yeah, great. Any, I mean, there's other stuff that I might have missed or just not included here. Yeah. Does it um, slightly lack a missional aspect to it, reading it like this? Like, um, well, you might have to tell me in three pages' time. I don't think so, because I think the story of Israel is all missionally arced anyway. And, and of course, the book ends with now going to all nations. And so effectively, this is the great return from exile and it's the great separation of the nations being scattered, now being gathered back. So I, don't, I think the art of the story as a whole is the story of God's mission with and through Israel, which is now being reformed in the light of Jesus. So I don't think so, but I, it's possible I'm not, not doing it very well. Obviously, if you stop at the end of page one, it sort of looks like the, the climax is the Sermon on the Mount. And that's obviously... We haven't got to the end yet, but that's, to me, I, I, this is the first quarter, I think, telling Israel's story that way, given that the purpose of Israel is, as we saw earlier, blessed to be a blessing, now that Jesus is effectively embodying all of that and reliving the entire story, I personally think is, is a very missional arc. But ask me again in 20 minutes, because it might be that there are other things we need to fill in first. Are there any other questions on this bit so far? Some of this is a bit more... You know, the, the, the Moses stuff we've covered, so that's probably a little bit more familiar, at least initially. Okay. Then we get into, this will be less, you know, some of this will be less familiar, I would, I would think. So Matthew 8, verse 1, Jesus then leaves the mountain with a crowd, and Israel leaves Mount Sinai in Numbers chapter 10, you know, get the silver trumpets and get ready. Right, we're on the move. And that's where the trials and the rebellions in the wilderness take place. You have 10 healings, and you have 10 rebellions, and... The ten rebellions are difficult to kind of enumerate in numbers, but God obviously at one point says, you have tested me these ten times, so I think the idea of there being a ten and a ten may have some validity there. The man is cleansed from leprosy. It's the first one of those. Um, Miriam is obviously cleansed from leprosy. The Pharisees deny the legitimacy of Jesus, just like Korah and his company deny the legitimacy of... uh, no, not Jesus's. That's a mistake. I'm sorry. Uh, Moses's legitimacy, or Moses and Aaron and, and Miriam in a way. Um, but again, already early on, you've got these sort of trials, and then you have these challenges to authority, which is a big part of those conflict stories in Matthew. Uh, sheep without a shepherd gets, gets thrown in, which comes in towards the end of Numbers. And then you have the sending out of the 12 apostles, like the sending out of the 12 spies. And I think I, I, do, I, really, I do buy that. I think the idea that we have got 12, one from each, effectively the equivalent of one from each tribe, sent up and down the land to go and seek out kingdom people, live among them, and bring back their fruits, I think is a pretty good way of reading Matthew chapter 10 typologically, that that is largely what the apostles are being sent to do. And there's obviously more to it than that, but there's a judgment note and a blessing note, and I think there's, I buy that. You may not. We'll ask you in a moment. Um, and then you have the, the, the lengthy instructions for mission. And Deuteronomy is the lengthy instructions for conquest. And then the judgment that falls on this generation who went out into the wilderness, just as the judgment on the rebellious wilderness generation. And there's quite a lot of that in Matthew 11, isn't there? That these sort of judgment on this generation, this perverse generation. They're not going to see it. Because this, you know, the Chorazin, Bethsaida, all those bits. 
And again, I think, yeah, there's a lot of the judgment on this wilderness generation. And I, I just think when you read it in that way, you find yourself going, okay, Jesus is the, the judgment prophet, which we often find, find hard to square, don't we? Jesus is coming to save, but he's also coming to judge. You, know, you think, yeah, that, that happens a lot in the wilderness generation, the idea that this particular generation are being held uniquely accountable for their rejection of God's word to them through their prophets, and that that's not just what happened to Israel, but it's what happened in AD 28 or whatever it was. Jesus offers rest. Joshua achieves rest. You might say, well, that's a bit facile. There's only five verses. But I think the idea that at this point in the story of Matthew, we get to a point just before the David typology really kicks off, you have a moment where Jesus says, come to me. If you're weary and heavy laden, I will refresh you. You get rest now. At the moment in where if the typological reading is right, at the moment where you would expect a Joshua, obviously Yeshua, Jesus, Joshua, same name. And then saying, we've now got rest found in me. And then it moves into a David bit of the story. I buy that. Again, you may, you may not. And then, obviously, in chapter 12, particularly, you have Jesus as the true David. I wonder, would it help to turn there? Let's, I think you'd feel bad if you left today and you'd never opened your Bible. That would be really poor form, wouldn't it? So let, let's go to Matthew chapter 12 and just maybe even just read aloud the, um, the section uh, in, in chapter 12. Um, because I think there's, you can see particularly this opening story which we touched on about the, the, the holy bread. Um, so let's read Matthew chapter 12. I'm, I've got the ESV, but reading from verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Haven't you read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it wasn't lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or haven't you read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you'd known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Oh, don't you love Jesus? He's just great. It's like what I've been listening to myself speaking and I hear him speak. I'm like, whoa. It's very, very confrontational. But quite a shift here into, into a very... So the judgment on this generation towards the end of chapter 11, then rest, then David and the temple. And it seems to be a shift in the way the story's being told with this heavy concentration on David. He went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath and will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So is Jesus the shepherd here? Is this not just a Jesus is the king like David, Jesus is the shepherd like David? Because obviously Jesus doesn't say at this point, I am the good shepherd. But the idea, I'm doing for this man what a shepherd would do for his sheep. It's clearly in the, in the pattern, isn't it? That he's obviously implicitly saying, I'm the shepherd in this story, in this little sort of analogy. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. David does that too, of course, while the, the, the powers that be are trying to destroy him. 
And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, again, my Dawid in Hebrew would be, with whom, my, my David that is, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he won't break, and a smoldering wick he won't quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And I don't want to overread the David typology here, but obviously David gets introduced to the story as a young man who's able to make a demonized man better. Now, that's not the only thing going on here, but that's David's, back to his musical ministry, somebody mentioned earlier. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? And then you get the Beelzebub story, and I'll pause there with the reading, but can you see that the, I think the typology, at least in that section, is pretty thick with David content, isn't it? The holy bread, the specific appeal to David, the shepherd language, the demon's language, and then the explicit, can this be the son of David, with obviously a messianic David-like quote from Isaiah to show you where you're going in the story. So I think that's, I think that's pretty strong and you know, intense references there. Um, compassion, not sacrifice, plotted against by the Pharisees, withdrawals, exorcisms, and so on. So there's quite a lot there, I think. Yeah, Tom. Um, yeah, just observing on the bit with um, there's the man in the synagogue in yeah interesting yeah you as in you are the man this is the same thing you're doing yeah as obviously jesus has a lot of sheepy stories um i just i like the word sheepy i don't know why i've just always enjoyed it but yes i think that's really good yeah i hadn't seen that that's good others just keep chipping in or maybe we have <laughs> that's all my thoughts for now um, but yes so Jesus is the true David and then of course if we come through, forward to, to the um, just jump down a couple of paragraphs past the sorry my particular version doesn't have um, verse numbers in it but when it gets to teacher we wish to see a sign right? can we just jump down to that so a couple of paragraphs further down then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying teacher we wish to see a sign from you but he answered them an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah's here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And at that point, the transition goes... David into Solomon, and chapter 13 is primarily a load of parables and wisdom based on the natural world, you might say. Now, obviously, that's not all it is. It's kingdom parables. But so you've got your very strong David references in chapter 12, comes into chapter 13. Then the transitional moment, I think, is says, now someone greater than Solomon's here. And quickly, we move into lots of wisdom stories and lots of parables. And again, the idea of these sayings is mashal, the idea that this sort of some, a wise saying, a proverb, is difficult to translate because in the Old Testament, they're generally talked about as proverbs, but they would be, I will be open, you know, as you know, and sometimes in the Proverbs or Psalms, I will open my mouth in a 
mashallah, in a, in, a, in a saying or in a parable. And so the idea that Jesus, we would separate and think parables, proverbs, totally different sorts of things. But actually that doesn't hold up in the way the Hebrew words are used. It's actually, I will open my mouth in a parable proverb, kind of a, a saying, a, a wise saying that makes you think about the world in a different way. Um, obviously, we, we, in English, we use very different words for those two things. But in, when you find it in the Psalms and in Proverbs, the, the language is much more similar, so often identical. So the idea that Jesus is a, a parable saying wisdom giver then runs all the way through, of course, chapter 13, and there's the very explicit visit of the Queen of Sheba to Solomon um, that is, again, connecting the dots. So the idea we're moving from a Davidic to a Solomonic phase in Matthew's Gospel in chapters, late chapter 12 into chapter 13. Comments, questions? Both hands. Do you know what? That is, I haven't had that before, unless you're stretching. But it looks like the exuberance behind this question is just, I'm very excited to know what it is. <laughs> I'm just wondering, if one was British with the Gospel of Matthew and you're going section by section through it yeah. in a systematic way, it feels like there's a running commentary in the background Yes. Yeah, that's really good. How do you, what do you do with preaching? That's really good. That's a really good question. Yeah, so how do you, is it just basically too much? If you're preaching through Matthew, is it too much to continually be drawing back for this is the Old Testament story? Um, I would, I, not because I, I don't have an answer. I'd actually love us to talk about that on tables in a moment when we've done the whole thing. Where, where does this work? Where does it help? And how might it shape our preaching and our thought? I, I, have, I have my own view on it. Um, but I'm resisting the impulse to share it now. Um, so we will, can we come back to that in a few moments? Because I think that's exactly the right question. Is where, where, what are we going to do with that? Does it actually help? Um, I, think, I think it does and can, but clearly there's a, a, you could totally overdo it. And we've probably all been in, you've all probably heard sermons where you think, oh gosh, this... So a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. This person has clearly got this thing that they're very excited about and they can't talk about anything else. And I don't, I don't want that, but I also think it can be really helpful in certain ways. But let's, let's come back to that. Yeah. Um, so obviously, David Solomon, like that, that works. Um, you've got Jonah right in the middle. Yeah. It seems out of place. Oh, I see, yes. If you, and this is, where, this is obviously where it, it would break down if you went every allusion to the Old Testament in Matthew is in canonical order. That is clearly not the case. Like, um, back to the point we made earlier about the Passover. You know, the, 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 the Passover is huge in Matthew 26. Obviously, it's the whole point of the story, but it's totally out of sequence. So if you try and squish it like, too much, it's absolutely going to kill the story. And Matthew is faithful to what happened, not just showing us these connections. Um, and obviously, this, in this case, Matthew has connected the Jonah, and Jesus is saying these two examples, Jonah, Solomon, look at these two examples in the kingdom period of something that I am greater than, and as a way of corresponding your, your inability to repent at the preaching of someone who's come to you. But he lands with the Solomon one, and then the Solomon one springboards into all the parables. So I do think Matthew's still doing it on purpose to show us the Solomon connection, but he's clearly not being reductionist and removing every reference that doesn't fit which might actually be part of the answer to the question you just asked, 
which is, again, back to the hammer and the nail. Like, if, if all you can see is, this is the story of Israel again, yay! But then you're just going to kill the gospel because there's so many other things happening in it. Um, so, yeah, it's a good, good challenge. As you were reading it, it strikes that the, this is the missional. So maybe as we're reading David and Solomon, we don't necessarily think of them as primarily missional, but then we're reading this out. And, of course, Jonah is uh, yeah. Israel being who they're meant to be, and Solomon, as the queen of the south comes, yeah. Solomon being who he's meant to be, and it's almost like Jesus yeah, exactly. Well, in some, you're absolutely right, because in some ways, the most missional moment in the story of one and two kings as a whole is the moment the Queen of Sheba comes up and goes, wow, I can see the... Because the wisdom of God expressed in the temple of God and the people of God is so captivating to her that she's like, wow. And, you know, as you know, people in Ethiopia still, to, the, to this day, trace their spiritual lineage back to her, whether, however you buy that or historically or not. But as in, this is, that's a massive missional impact to a nation that's been Christian for 1,700 years. And obviously her story sat in the scriptures the whole time as a missional story, but not one of classic, right, let's go and evangelize another nation, but more like it's more the come and see rather than the go and tell model of evangelism in which people from the nation see the wisdom of God expressed through his temple and go, wow, you must be the real God. And that's obviously one of the most missional things that happens in the Old Testament. So yeah, I think that's a really good connection. Just picking up on... Jewish perspective from that view. I noticed that when we were just reading through briefly those things, that it talked about how much greater the temple, how much um, greater is one here than Jonah and so on. There's, there's this kind of Hebrew model of teaching where it establishes something on the smaller tree. Yeah. There's how much more it is yeah. in this bigger thing. And that, that pops up all the way through. It's, it's kind of the most thing worth yeah. Like, if this is established, this little matter how much true. Yes. This yes. Like, how, how, how yeah, I mean, it, this is. I've, Jesus does it a lot, obviously. Like, if, if this is true, then how much more will that be true? And obviously, that is quite a common trope. It's just a, if arguing from the lesser to the greater is quite an easy way of doing it. But you, obviously, it dominates. Um, a book like Hebrews or something like that, which is almost entirely, hey, here's this thing, and now someone's better. And so you, that sort of leveraging people up from something they know to something they don't. Um, and, but yeah, so he, there's obviously he's not just fulfilling the type of Solomon. He's a, a true and better Solomon. Um, I hope that is almost you know, taken for granted through all of this, that he's not just doing what they did again. He's fulfilling what it was always pointing to. But yeah, and he does it not just in what he, how he lives, but in what he says all the time. Yeah. Um, is the fact that the judges isn't... I mean, it feels like it's, it's missing in this sort of retelling. Yeah. Yeah, there'll be some other books that are missing as well, I think. There'll be some other books that are missing as well, in that, in that sense. And I, I think you'd probably say bad periods. I mean, as in, you know, he's not really, um, you wouldn't say Jesus is the true and better Manasseh or Ammon, do you know what I mean? Like terrible people. And I think there are clearly, you, you can definitely see Jesus is the true and better Gideon and Samson and, and all the other ways, like, you know, saving more people in his death and in his life, all those things. But I don't, you're right, I don't think they are reflected in this, in Matthew. And there are a number of sections of the Old Testament where you don't really, see that and I think that judges is yeah there's an obvious omission yeah Hello, Andrew. if you're going to take that view Jesus is the true and better answer to what we see in judges or anywhere else in scripture for that matter yeah yes 
So there's, I, I, I mean, I think what I like is you can have your cake and eat it with all of it. Yeah, yeah, you can. What I, think, what I think he's saying, though, is that you don't, there's no section of Matthew that corresponds to the judge's story, which I, I think I probably ag agree with. I think it moves fairly quickly from, in the passage I was just reading, actually, from Joshua, come to me, I'll give you rest. Judges as a series of how that didn't really work out very well, and then into David. So he kind of skips it in the space of those two or three verses, which I, I think is fair, yeah. Uh, John, did you were you waving? Yes, that's the problem to which the Davidic king is the solution. I, yeah, absolutely. And so you might always say the Pharisees are like the Philistines or the Midianites or maybe in that. But I, 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 would, I accept the point that it isn't drawn out at all in the, in the flow of the gospel, I think. Okay, next page. Curiouser and curiouser. This is the bit, the bit that got me the most. Where I was like, ooh, the Elijah and Elisha stories in the middle. See if you can work with me on this, all right? And again... Up to you whether or not you do or not. Herod, encouraged by his wife, kills John the Baptist. Chapter 14. We move quite great. The references to Elijah and Elisha are, and a lot of the miracle stories clustered very suddenly into this period. of Matthew 14 to 16 or 17. Obviously Ahab, encouraged by his wife, tries to kill Elijah and actually does kill Naboth. And there are hints, I think, of, of both of them. That, that you, would, you would see Herodias... If Herodias is anybody in the Old Testament, she's Jezebel, right? I think you would... Be, the, the, that's the, the obvious parallel of the sort of evil queen who's going, I'm, I'm going to try and use my power of my husband to get her to kill the Lord's prophet. You think, yeah, that's pretty clear, I think, as a, um, as a, as a transfer. Jesus miraculously multiplies fish and bread. Well, of course, Elisha and Eli, neither Elijah and Elisha quite do that, but they miraculously provide oil. They miraculously provide bread, you know, with you know, the woman with the oil and so on, and keep the oil flowing so you can keep baking loaves and providing enough for your family to eat. There is the miraculous healing of the stew. There's a multiplication of the bread leftovers. So there's actually quite a few food miracles, in the, particularly in the Elisha stories in 2 Kings chapter 4. You then got what Lightheart calls the sort of some of the weird miracles appear a number of times. I mean, and a little bit further down, he actually just calls them the weird miracles. But some of these things, Jesus makes Peter walk on water, like Elisha makes the axe head fight. You think, oh, that's a bit of a stretch. But actually, if you think, where in the Bible, you know that I imagine I'm mostly speaking to continuationists about spiritual gifts. But if you see someone who's a pretty strict cessationist about spiritual gifts, they will often press the point that you only get miracles in particular almost like spasms in the Old Testament of miracles. You get a lot around the Exodus, and then it goes quiet, and then you get a lot around the story of the conquest, and then it goes quiet. You get a lot around Elisha and Elijah. And in large part, that is true. Now, I think there's, obviously, I think there's miracles in nearly every book in the Bible, and as soon as you start saying, God said, you're dealing with a relationship between the spiritual and natural world that isn't cessationist in my view of things. But I think there is still some truth to the fact that a lot of the miracle stories in the Bible of healings and miraculous provision are concentrated in this little section. And the same in, in Matthew, actually. You get a lot of them get bundled together. A lot of the, you might say, the weird miracles, the nature miracles, not just the healing of a person, 
but the idea of providing far more of something or making something float or even pulling a coin out of a fish's mouth. And some of that, that's another thing, by the way, Liz, you wouldn't have. Imagine if we didn't have Matthew. There would be no temple tax story with a drachma inside a fish. What's that doing there? But these women, and, and what Lyhart points out is that concentration of those funny miracles in the gospel corresponds to the concentration of funny miracles in the stories of Elisha, of which there are loads. There's a lot of odd stories. And you've preached through this section, as some of us have, uh, of Scripture. You think, what on earth am I going to do with this? Oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. Then he threw flour in, and there was no more death in the pot. It's just like these funny stories. You're like, what am I going to do with that? Um, I've heard that particular passage preached very, very strangely by somebody who tried to get a lot of meaning out of what they shouldn't have done with the gourd in a New Frontiers church um, that is attended by several people here. Um, anyway, <laughs> I'll just throw that out there so you can wonder if it was yours. Um, but but it, in some ways, it just reflects how these things do stretch us. You're going, the axe head floating. Oh, man of God, it was borrowed. Then he just made the axe head float. And he move on to the next thing. What is going on? And Lighthouse making the case that actually the, the strange miracles in the Gospels are where you would expect them to be in light of where they are in this story. So Jesus making somebody walk on water corresponds to the making the axe head float. Jesus heals the daughter of a foreign woman in Tyre and Sidon. Elijah heals the son of a foreign woman in Sidon and obviously raises the Shunammite son as well. In, uh, Elisha raises the Shunammite son in 2 Kings 4. Jesus is then compared with and transfigured alongside Elijah. And that obviously in this section, right? In, in chapter 16 and 17. And then there is the ascension of Elijah and the transfer of the Spirit to Elisha. The disciples are then told to heal, but are not able to do so, just as Gehazi is told to heal, and he's not able to do so. And there, I think there are some disciples are Gehazis in that section, in that little story. We've just had the transfiguration, you've seen the mighty power of God, now you're told to do it and you can't. And obviously they're not total Gehazis and they're not trying to, you know, trying to siphon off the money. And, well, one of them is, but we'll leave him for now. Um, but as in the disciples generally are not Gehazis in all of those respects, but I think, again, you'd see the, the parallels. The weird miracle to pay the temple tax and then, as I say, the weird miracles in the Elisha story. Then Jesus enters Jerusalem, acclaimed as king by people laying their cloaks, which is the moment in 2 Kings 9. I know we, we don't make as much of it in our reading because, to be honest, this, those chapters in 2 Kings are... We, if we're honest, we just get a bit lost in them, don't we? Elijah and Elisha have done all the miracles. That's all cool. We'll preach on that. Um, and then it goes back to Kings. Oh, to be honest, I just don't really know what's going on. They're all killing each other for the next 10 chapters. But again, Jehu is such an important moment, isn't it? Because Jehu entering Jerusalem to put to death the remnants of Ahab's family is what the still small voice that we know and love, but always forget what it actually said, um, is, said to Eli- is said to Elijah, Elijah, come here, I'm going to whisper. Then he wasn't in the fire, he wasn't in the wind, he wasn't in the earthquake. Then the still small voice came and said, Elijah, what are you doing here? I've been very zealous, I know that. Here's what I want you to do. And at that point we check out and have no idea what he actually, what the still small voice, wait, there was a still small voice, what did it say? No idea, that's what we'll do with that story. But he said, I want you to do this, you've got to anoint Elisha and then I want you to anoint Hazael, I want you to anoint Jehu and they're going to wipe out Ahab's family. That's what they're, that's your ministry. That's the culmination of what you had to do. And that's the same thing then, and if effectively Jehu riding in, there's this crazy guy, he's driving his chariot like, I think he looks like Jehu, son of Nimshi, comes in and just and destroys the enemies of God, riding on a you know, coming in with people laying down their cloaks and acclaiming him as king, that that is Jesus' triumphal entry. We don't very often think about Jesus as the true and better Jehu son of Nimshi. 
I suspect. Because we don't really, some of us are going, I still can't quite work out, is he a goody or a baddie? You know, I mean, Jesus is one of those complex guys, isn't he? Like Joab, where you're like, I don't know which side of the ledger to put him on. Um, now, that's reflecting my wife, but she will often say to me, is, is this one a goody or a baddie? And, you know, we all have that. And, but Jehu, I think there is a triumphal entry story being told here in light of the story of Jehu being acclaimed as king by people laying their cloaks. Then there's a cleansing of the temple, just as Jehu destroys the idols. Then there is a repair of the temple story, obviously, under Joash. Then you get the den of robbers. Um, this is, we're now moving into the territory of Jeremiah. The den of robbers speech, the temple confrontation, the withered fig tree, just as you get that in Jeremiah 7 to 8. You get the parable of the workers in the vineyard, Jeremiah, and obviously Isaiah 5 as well, ruining the vineyard. The prophets are ignored and the servants are beaten, like Jeremiah is ignored and beaten. So there's a lot more in there that's probably more of a... I imagine no one here, unless we read all the same books I have, are probably not going, oh yeah, all of those. Some of us are going, never thought of maybe any of those. But again, let me ask the question. What do you buy? What do you not? What do you want to ask about? What are you going on? Johnny? There's a whole bit missing. Yes. 18 to 20. 20. What does certain light art make of that? Because that's the only gap. Yes. No, so, uh, so much of that, I mean, I don't... I, I don't think he's... He, he obviously writes commentary on it. I don't think he particularly tries to fit that into the typology. A bit, again, same comment I was making earlier, really. He doesn't squish it. If it isn't there, I think you just have to admit it isn't there. So this is, for instance, the, the rich young ruler story and the divorce and remarriage teaching. Um, so they're, they're, you know, there's a, and the parable of the work in the vineyard. I mean, obviously, you could see a vineyard connection if you wanted to really shoe on, shoe on it in. Oh, is it Naboth? You know, I, so I, I, I personally think you just leave the bits that aren't there and follow the flow with the ones that are. I think it's the bigger picture of it being the Elijah-Elisha section of the gospel through to about chapter 17, I think is really compelling. I think then with chapter 18 to 20, particularly the sections around the ministry and purpose of the church and the challenges to money, sex, and power, and then the, the thing on grace in chapter 20, I don't, think is, I don't think reflects a New Testament story. Because in some ways, the narrative stops there for a bit. Jesus is doing, 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 and then there's quite a lot of teaching and dialogue and debate. I mean, in chapter 19 of Matthew, really only two things happen. You know, and it's treated at some length. And then there's the long parable of the workers in the vineyard. So probably, I think, if maybe Lightheart would say, we should have asked him two years ago, shouldn't we? I think he might say, yeah, this is, there's not very much narrative here. And as a result, the narrative parallels stop, a little bit like they do in the Sermon on the Mount. So, Howard. Uh, do you think that, I mean, speculation, so please speculate, as it's the name of the conference. <laughs> do you think that with the, you know, the Jewish people who were there, obviously the young guys have been through talk, learned the first five books, if they carried on and went to secondary school, they learned the rest of it. Yeah. And they would have known the story on the right really well. Do you think that uh, a Jewish reader of Matthew would have gone, oh, that's obvious. Oh, yeah, that's a flow. Oh, that's clearly Peter Walker. Do you think they'd have done that? Or do you think Matthew's seen some of this and then sat down and prayed and, mm. and then seen it? I mean, because mm. obviously, as Richard's point, it's their big meta-narrative story. Yeah. So they would have all known it, yeah. but we don't know it. Do you think that they would have seen this? I... Some bits more than others, probably, but I think it's always a difficult question to answer because you're trying to imagine how a Jew you've never met would read it. I think, I think probably 
the same, something of the same degree of recognition mingled with, oh, really? That we've just had, with some of these being stronger resonances than others, would be, would be true. But I suspect that in an, in an oral, oral culture where you have a lot of this memorized and where, I mean, the biblical literacy of the synagogue attending Jews in the first century is indicated by some degree by where they just hand the, synagogue, they hand the scroll of Isaiah, 66 chapters of uninterrupted Hebrew with no pagination, no fonts, you know, no sort of verse numbers. And he just goes, okay, there it is. And then they all know what's going to happen. And they know what he is and isn't saying when he preaches it. I think that shows their biblical literacy is high compared to ours and to imagine we don't need convincing of. And so, yeah, I'd expect them to get more of the resonances, but I also think some of these are more obvious than others. I think it's more that the big flow from Joseph and Genesis to Moses and the wilderness generation to David to Elijah and Elisha to Jeremiah, the, the Jeremiah references, I think, are very strong in the temple confrontations in chapter 21, where I think, yeah, you... Jesus is directly quoting them. You have made it a den of robbers. Like anyone who knows Jeremiah is going to go, oh yeah, I know exactly what that is. We, we don't because we think it's about selling things in Westminster Abbey or whatever. Get very upset about postcards and things like that. But, actually, but clearly what Jesus is, is drawing on that whole tradition in the temple. Um, so I expect they would get it more readily than we would. But they might well, if we should ask one of them one day, they might well go... Flipping heck, I didn't know. I never saw that. I think Matthew might be going, I never saw that either. I think you've just read that into it. Um, but I, I'm happy to be at the more maximalist end for the ones that stick because I think some of them really do. John Bryan. So you think some of that's revealed by Matthew 16 where Jesus is so Yeah, really good. So Jeremiah's going to come up later on. Elijah's obviously reading the chapter 3 of Elijah. So that would indicate that there is some recognition. Yes, that's really helpful. You hear that? Saying, so, so do you think that some of that idea that, the, that they got it in the first century is obviously brought out by the fact that when Jesus says, who do you think I am? Who do people say I am? They say, some people say Elijah or some, one of the prophets. Do they, even mention, they might even mention Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So they're, they're clearly seeing him in that light already, which I think we know, but I think that's a really good point. Maybe that shows that they're not only going, oh, you're a bit like him and you do miracles and preach the word of God. No, it's like, the things you're doing are actually echoing a lot of these miracle stories, particularly because that one comes in chapter 16, which is just where you'd expect the Elijah references to be at their most intense, because that's the Elijah bit of the story. Ripple of applause for John Bryan, if you would. The man, he's, he's lying down because his back is bad, not because of any particular disinterest, um, or lack of interest, I should say. Um, yes, upful. Less profound. Um, <laughs> the... Cleansing of the temple reference in Matthew 21, yeah. John, for example, totally different place yeah. in the story. Can we yeah. say he's doing that to try and make the point of Jew, for example? Like, okay. he's putting it where it is to make... Okay, so who's moved the cleansing of the temple story? Matthew or John or both? <laughs> um, no, I think John's moved it. Um, and I think, John, I think John's moved it because of his understanding. Others will disagree on this. But I think John's moved it because of his, particularly his temple Christology, which we've actually had touched on a couple of times with what you were saying earlier about the water flowing out and the healing the nature, all that. So I think John front loads the temple cleansing story. I think there are interpreters who think he did it twice. Um, I just, I don't really buy that at a more of a historical level. I think they wouldn't, 
they wouldn't allow that to happen. So I think John has, has moved it from where the other Gospels all place it to the front because he wants to show you a bit. And I mean, this is like, it's like a Christopher Nolan thing to do. Let's go, okay, I'm going to put that bit of the story, which doesn't actually happen until later, up here so you can see the significance of all these other things that happen in a very different way. Um, and, and obviously John, John also doesn't have the confrontation narrative set the same way at all. So he sees the confrontations happening much more in these lengthy debates going back and forth. But actually the entry into Jerusalem, he then disappears up to the upper room, washes feet and talks for the night. Rather than having this series of increasingly heated debates, the debates have already happened in John, in, particularly in you know, chapter 6, 8, 10, that sort of thing. So I think John just does the conflicts between Jesus and his enemies in a very different way. Um, I, I think John personally is the one who's, who's moving yeah, I mean, the chronology. But, but there will be, honestly, there'll be commentators on serious people who would go, it's the opposite. I think John has got the chronology right and Matthew's moved it. But I just think Matthew, Mark, and Luke all moving it, I'm not. I'm not persuaded. Um, Bex. Do you buy all of this? All of this? Yes, at varying levels. I don't think there's anything on there I go, oh gosh, I can't see that at all. Um, some of them I think are, are very clear. Um, so to me, as I say, the, the, almost the bigger the, the, uh, the bigger the chunk, the Elijah-Elisha cor- correspondence in broad outline, I think to me is very convincing. The specific going is the story of the you know, the fish with the drachma in its mouth meant to echo some of the weird nature miracles. I go, well, I don't really mind, but I think the broader point is right. And and I think this is a sort of over, he's going at the maximalist end, but as I say, I I think I am happier at that end because I think you see more connections. But yeah, there's some I wouldn't defend as strongly as others. Darren and then, do you still have a question, Darren? Yeah? Um, So Matthew 14, explicitly get a flashback. Um, to, to the death of John the Baptist. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, which is interesting because that allows him to put, put it there. Yes. 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 Oh, that's a good point. Yes. Because Matthew is explicit, he's doing a flashback, isn't he? That Matthew refers to an event in the past. He sort of does almost the whole thing in an extended brackets, going, now this is what had happened, which means that chronologically, I had never thought about that. You're right. Because if he'd put it where it actually happened, he might have ended up putting it in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which is a very weird twist, isn't it? Or something, I mean, maybe that's silly, but as in if it had been in the middle of chapters eight and nine, it wouldn't have had that narrative flow to reflect the typology. That's a really good point. Jez, is your point similarly insightful? Well, I, it's not my point, I think it's very good, and you may have been able to say this, but uh, we're, we're building a bit of a pocket priest in Kingsbury, and we've got the king of Israel as the priest, the representative of humanity, I was not about to say that. That is very insightful. That was Matt's point, by the way. Oh, well done, Butters. <laughs> um, yes, I, I think that's... I, do, you, do you mean sequentially? No, no, I just mean generally. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. See, this is, good. this is why we do these things together. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. Do you think we take more persuading that... The typological stuff is there and important, and we should. Do you think that the the Jews that Jesus was speaking to just thought the story worked like this in a way that we don't? I I do. I I think somewhere in our, I think sometimes there is a a hesitancy. So some of some of it is a lack of Judaism in our roots, is is, is like in our historic, in our theological roots, right? 
So some, the church's history with the Jews is not good, and a lot of our great interpreter theologians did not have good things to say about the Jews. And as a result, some of the... Not, no one goes Jesus isn't Jewish, but some of the ways in which Jesus is living out Israel's story can get dialed down. Some of it, I think, is that the typology, in our, again, in our theological roots, is probably less important in the specific debates if some of the generations where a lot of the heavy lifting got done. So this, a lot of this stuff doesn't have any cash value when it comes to the person of Christ in the creed, for instance. So it doesn't become a major part of Christian doctrine and catechesis because the doctrines of the creed are more fully established in John or Hebrews or Paul than they are here. So it wouldn't be something you'd make sure everyone retained. And similarly, a lot of it doesn't mean much for justification by faith. Or, so I think some of it is just that the way our theology is formed around very important doctrines everyone's arguing about, so you're just less likely in our tradition to see it. Whereas I think in a, for Jewish people who are literally celebrating Passover, Tabernacles, Hanukkah, all that, that sort of living out the story is just more prominent in their symbolism than it is in ours. So you wouldn't miss, Christians wouldn't miss things that related to baptism or the Lord's Supper as easily because they're in our symbolic world. Unless we're non-denominational evangelicals, in which case they might not be. But, mo- but by and large, they are in our history, right? Whereas I think for the Jews, they're like, well, obviously, any time you go through, you're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles every year, anything that looks and feels like tabernacles is going to be... So when Jesus says, on the last and greatest day of the feast, come to me and rivers will flow, they're, like, they're not going, oh gosh, do you think that's a reference to the... You know, they're going, of course, it's, it's obvious that it is. Whereas for us, our symbolic world is not as sharp as that and is not as built around Israel's narrative as that. So probably we would be less able to see it, I think. Yeah. Is not Hart the only one who's done this or did done before? And other scholars disagree with him? I think he... I doubt there's any scholar that we're going to go with him on every single one of these judgments, but I think the outline of it is not completely new, but but probably there are areas of it he presses into that I haven't seen anyone else do. So so Jeremiah, everyone sees. Moses, David, and lots of these ones everyone sees. Elijah to a measure, but Jehu, I may well be. I mean, if we read another 50 commentaries, we'd probably find others picking up on it in some ways. But even when people see the reference, I'm not sure they would always go, this is part of an arc in which, as in this bit would only make sense if the Jehu typology appears here as opposed to there or there. Um, Herod as Ahab, I'm sure people have picked that up, but I'm not sure that many people would have seen it as significant that it was in that section of the gospel as opposed to somewhere else. But I haven't read enough to be certain. Tim? Where I'm getting a bit stuck is just thinking takes us back to where we were before a little bit. Is this Jesus being clever and doing a weird miracle pointing to Elijah? Or is this Matthew being clever and doing like a selective like retelling? Or both? Or am I saying yeah. wrong? Um, I think it's it's both but in different ways. I th- the way I would put it is I think Jesus is deliberately and self-consciously fulfilling a number of the major Old Testament figures in his life and ministry to show himself as the, back to what Jez was saying, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king. So you're obviously going to fulfill lots of those stories in yourself. What Matthew, I think, is doing is arranging it in such a way that we can see that he is fulfilling the whole story. But I wouldn't be surprised if, and this is the excellent point John made, which is why he got the ripple, um, is because Matthew has... That was you that said about the John the Baptist thing? Or was that Darren? About moving the John the Baptist story? 
Oh, that was Chris. Who didn't get written? No. I'm, I, to be honest, it doesn't matter who was right or, you know. But the, whoever made the point about displacing the story about John the Baptist because it was in flashback, that's, that's quite a good example. That was Darren, right? So that was quite a good, yeah, yeah, there we go. That's quite a good example of, of we know that Matthew's done that rather than, I mean, apart from anything else, Jesus is clearly not responsible for the beheading of his cousin anyway. Um, but, the, but the putting in that bit of the story is Matthew's work, not Jesus's, in that sense. So I think I would say the ordering of it is Matthew, but the deliberate fulfillment of it is Jesus. I would, at a simplistic level. Yeah. The point you make about um, the lack of understanding around this because of our Jewishness, the lack of Jewishness, or the um, kind of creeds and things like that, do you think that has led to some of the uh, some of the things that we see in the church around eschatology and the relationship between the church and the Jewish nation and things like that? Because we're not seeing it as a, a combined and continuing story. Yes. Yes, in, in part, yes, in that I think, in a strange way, an anti, the anti Semitism in the church's history can produce a dehistoricized reading of Scripture, which in a strange way ends up almost overstating the place of, say, the Jewish land now, because it's not seeing the story in its, in its correct frame, which, is, of course, is not, which is not what Paul himself did as he's writing about it, he, he's going, no, of course, this, now you just see the typology. And this is, so the promise to Abraham and his seed that they'd be heirs of the cosmos. Which, you're like, well, that's not what he said. He said the land. But you know, Paul's going, yeah, but can't you see? That's where the story's going. So uh, you've been grafted into the vine, uh, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I think, good point. Stu. How important, just think about, we just think about having the Jewish mind would read and hear all this stuff. How important is chapter one? in terms of yeah. uh, like a, kind of, like a bit like John's prologue yeah. and kind of like the overture of the whole thing. Yeah, that's really good. How much of a chapter one Matthew basically saying, this is what my book is about, yes. the whole story. Yeah. And therefore, if you've got that, if they've read that and heard that, they would read the whole thing. Yeah. With that in mind. Yeah, that's really good. That's really important. I should have said it. I wish I had. That's a really good... No, that's, because actually all four Gospels have that, don't they? That Mark is the same way. It's like the beginning of the Gospel. Of, and then in the middle, we get the high point, And then in the very end, we'll have the end. And then Matthew is going, this is the book of the origins of. And then here's a genealogy. So, yeah, it's, you should be raising our consciousness to the kind of book he's written. That's a really good point. Bex. I was going to say, I think some of the questions that we have come from a, a kind of ickiness in our tradition. We talked about this in the break. To actually seeing the way that biblical authors craft and yeah. sweat over um, the form that yeah. they writing takes and and it, it almost feels like it, um, we can have take a very reductionist view of scripture as like you know so we'll find it in our churches where you say well but you know this is not literal it's poetic it, and they say oh I thought it was true yeah well, it is true yeah um, but but it's written with the most incredible art yes and time and you know literary skill and yeah. all of that stuff which is part and parcel of the way everything's written Yes. Including this, and therefore that whole who, who, but you know, did Jesus do it? Did Matthew do it? Or did the Holy Spirit inspire it? Yeah. It's all yes, but we have a we can have a bit of an ickiness around yes. that, can't we, in our tradition? I think that's I think that's true. I think there's a lot of people for whom spirit inspiredness means spontaneity, yeah. 
And therefore, the idea that somebody planned Psalm 119 with eight verses starting with Aleph and eight verses starting with Bet and then eight verses starting with Gimel, it would just, but it could it be inspired if it was planned? And just see a couple of worship leaders sitting around the table just nodding, going, yes, that's true. All those best spontaneous moments in our worship times are often exact. They've been really thought carefully about. And, um, it's Churchill, isn't it? All, the, all my best off-the-cuff off the lines were worked on months before. And I think, that, uh, uh, but they are, I think that's, that's true. And that's even oh, lots of us in the room are preachers. And you go, yeah, the fact that the Spirit speaks isn't, doesn't mean I didn't have to work hard for it. And I think Matthew's like that. But writ very large. He's, he's worked very hard on it, I think. Yeah, that's a good, a good point. Let me, okay, let, let me just move on to the last of the four, and then we will have a bit of time in the tables just to go, what do you think, and, and does it help? And pick up the question you asked, which I thought was really, really helpful. Um, so we've got one more. Um, so then in Matthew 23, you have the temple sermon and the denouncement of ungodly leaders. And this, I think if you read Matthew, if you, once, you've, once you've heard... That Jeremiah is not just the den of robbers quotes, but once you've heard that the, when you've heard Jeremiah is hovering, brooding, you might say, in the background to Matthew 21, 22, 23, I don't think you will ever unsee it. Like once you once you once you know that, you'll then go and think, oh gosh, this is. Every, next time you read Jeremiah, you'll go, oh my word, this is just like Jesus' temple confrontations in Matthew, in Matthew early Matthew twenties, um, because you know even da- even down to the references to Gehenna or Gehinnom. You know, the Valley of Topheth and the Valley of Slaughter in, Je- in Jeremiah all the way through. And the cor- confrontation with the leaders and the, you, you know, you blind guys. You read Jesus' rants about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the priests. And think this is just what Jeremiah was confronting. Um, I, yeah, I, I submit to you that you won't ever unsee it once you've seen it. Because it's so, it's so clear. And even it's all happening in the exact same place. Which is in the courts of the temple. It's a very dramatic confrontation between the, the weeping prophet and the hostile religious leaders who are about going to try and kill him. Uh, obviously, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, as Jeremiah weeps over Jerusalem, obviously, multiple times. Uh, but, uh, but you might even say that the, the weeping over Jerusalem at the end of the confrontation, in, so you get your rant against, the, woe to you, teachers of the law, hypocrites, finishes with Jesus crying over Jerusalem. You might say, as Jeremiah confronts the religious leaders, and then Jeremiah bursts into tears in Lamentations. You know, so it might literally be as much of an appendage as that. Um, then Jesus prophesies judgment on Jerusalem, says some will be taken and some left. As Jeremiah prophesies judgment on Jerusalem and some are taken, in, in, including Jeremiah, depending on how you read taken and left, but, um, and some are left. And then the faithful or unfaithful are illustrated as virgins, servants, sheep and goats. The faithful, unfaithful, illustrated as good or bad baskets of figs in Jeremiah. Of course, these are more parables about the good and the bad being separated then the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. I hope we don't need reminding of that and its place from Jeremiah, the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, like Jeremiah, is falsely accused and killed or left for dead in Jeremiah's case. Then the traitor falls into his own pit. There's innocent blood been shed and a purchase of a field to mark it, which obviously all is drawn out of Jeremiah. Um, and that's not the only echo, of course, there, but as I've said, Ahithophel with David, I think there's other echoes as well, but I think you can see them in the Jeremiah story. Jesus helped by an African, uh, Simon, Jeremiah helped by an African, Ebed-Melech. 
Um, I'm not sure that the concept of Africa is the key point there, but these, these, but these very distant foreign nations is more the point. I mean, they are both in Africa, but obviously Syria and Ethiopia might well have been completely different parts of the, the mental geography of a person at the time, but the fact that they are from far-flung lands who stand alongside the, the true prophet of Israel and help them when Israel is rejecting them, I do think is very significant. Um, I think it's helpful in our context, probably to draw out those connections when they're there. It helps particularly African brothers and sisters see themselves in the biblical story. Um, um, the mockery, the gall, the wagging of the heads in this cross story, obviously all imagery that's drawn from Lamentations. The death and resurrection of Jesus as fulfillment of Ezekiel's death and resurrection of Israel, the valley of dry bones, then coming back to life. And then Jesus, all authority is mine, so go and make disciples of all nations, which is how the Old Testament in Hebrew finishes. Of course, the Old Testament in Hebrew doesn't finish with Malachi, it finishes with two chronicles. And at the end of two chronicles, that's what Cyrus says, all authority has been given to me. So anybody wants to go back to the land, let him go up. So Jesus, in that sense, fin- the, the, the gospel of Matthew finishes where the Old Testament in Hebrew finishes with, the, with the two chronicles 36 and Cyrus's summons claim to universal authority which obviously in Cyrus's case is bogus but there's a sense in which Jesus is fulfilling the true and better Cyrus role at that point as well so any again any questions or clarifications on that and then I want us to do some group what group right yeah um, he, he draws a lot of parallels but not but not exp- I mean Obviously, I think the, the whole abomination of desolation thing and the judgment on the, the judgment on the enemies is, I think, is a. I was going to say a given. I think I think it is, but but he's interesting because as if you're here for Revelation, which I think you were, he talks a lot in Revelation about Babylon and Jerusalem. But obviously, in Matthew 24, um, you know, the the Babylon the, the Babylonians are the enemies like Rome surrounding the holy city. Um, so yeah, I think that's that is clearly another connection in there. Yeah. Um, Luke. Um, can you hear it off Tom Wright with the Jeremiah stuff and what that means for Jerusalem, which is obviously really important for Jesus and for Matthew's gospel? Yeah. And then kind of relates that there's no real exile in there. Yeah. Is, is that because, some I would say, Israel is still in exile? Well, Wright would say that. I think Lightheart would say Jesus is going into exile himself, um, which. Wright would probably say as well in some ways because that's what becoming the curse is. But I think that in that sense, Jesus, because Jesus is not just the individual figures. For, so in Lightheart's reading, Jesus is not like, I'm a bit of Moses, a bit of David, a bit of Elisha. Jesus is Israel and he's recapitulating the whole story. And so obviously Jesus is, the cross is the moment Jesus is cast outside the city and ends up dying and bearing the curse and then returns back to the city. And even that, we'll come to it later probably, that bizarro, I mean, is, is, is it the weirdest story in the Bible? If it isn't, I don't know what it is. But, you know, the one about the, the dead, the people coming out of the tombs and apparently milling around for 36 hours and then going into the city on the side. I know that kind of very puzzling passage. But that itself has a very Ezekiel uh, kind of feel to it, doesn't it? These sort of dead bones rising and so on. So I think that, to me, is very convincing that Jesus is embodying the exile and that perhaps some of the explanation behind that very odd story is the fact that Matthew's trying to show us this is a fulfillment of the resurrection of Israel, not just of Jesus, from Exxon. Yeah. Is um, Jesus in the temple in that bit and drawing on Jeremiah and having to sacrifice? I'm just thinking about Jeremiah being from a priestly family and how that might be why he's chosen Ezekiel to being a priest. Um, is that why I asked some of the major prophets? It seems like they're 
I think I was thrown in because of this thinking I needed three microphones at one point. Um, Basically, Jeremiah came from a priestly yes. family, and Ezekiel being a priest, and all of this is happening in Jesus' life while he's in the temple, yeah. and he's coming towards the sacrifice. Yes. Could that be why they're chosen in the back? Yes. Well, I wondered, Jez, if this is what you meant, when, or what Matt meant on your behalf, or whatever, of the, the sort of going through almost a prophetic phase to a kingly phase to a priestly phase. I don't know if that's what you were going to say. It wasn't. Okay, you're like, that's total nonsense. But I wonder if, that, if, if, we, if we got very Calvinist about it and we go, this, this tripartite division is the way to read Matthew. I think there is, a, there is a case for that, that actually Jesus as lawgiver and announcer of kingdom becomes Jesus as new David and king ruling and David Solomon and then becomes the new priest who goes into the temple, confronts the existing priestly hierarchy and then offers himself as a sacrifice. I think you could see that as, a, as another way of... Maybe that's another little cloud we could have on the first page of structural approaches to Matthew, and you could put your name to it. But I, I like the idea. I certainly think that Jesus is living... That's partly because, of course, at this point, Israel is being led by priests rather than you know, kings or because the kings have been taken to exile and the prophets have largely gone quiet. So I can see why that would happen anyway, but I, I like it as an approach. Okay, so let's pause, and let's have 15 minutes. We'll, we'll come back together at 20 past seven just before we, um, so we dinner's at half past, um, and just to get any feedback on it. Because um, I want to talk, uh, the, I think there's a couple of payoffs for it just in the last few minutes. But let's give it 10 or 15 minutes just to discuss what, what, have, you, what have you learned from all of this stuff? And particularly, if you could let that question from, I'm so sorry, I've forgotten your name. I know I've been introduced to you before. Yes. Stuart. Um, Stuart's question, how does, this, how does this work or not for preaching? And how would you, to what extent would you incorporate this? Where would you think it would be helpful? Where would you think it would just be trivial or irrelevant? And let's talk about that. But other things that you want to take the conversation as well, and we'll come back together in 15.